0: shaken saints welcome back i'm jared halverson and i'm so grateful that you let me come and join you for scripture study today no matter what you've got on your to-do list no matter what the weather's like outside no matter how you're feeling today's a good day because today we get to talk about jesus in fact the way we get to do it with the help of john this week we only have one chapter i think this is the only time all year where we only have one chapter of study Uh, but it's one that deserves to stand alone because the, this prologue of the book of John, John chapter 1 for, for this week, how presents a picture of Jesus that absolutely soars. Do you remember when we talked a few weeks ago about the four Gospels and their different approaches and audiences and aims? And we, we connected each one to the four beasts of Revelation or the vision of Ezekiel? Well, if Matthew is the man and Mark is the lion and Luke is the ox, John... Our writer for today is the eagle. That's why I use the word soar, Because what he presents in Jesus. I love the Jesus of every gospel. Uh, he's so approachable in the gospel of Luke, for example. And when you need an approachable Christ, study him in the book of Luke. Uh, he uh, welcomes you with arms wide open, no matter who you are or what you've done. If, on the other hand, you need a Jesus that inspires you to greatness. We've, we've talked about this before with this contrary of the infinite and the intimate uh, that, that Enoch sees both, experiences both in, in uh, Moses chapter 7. Uh, Moses experiences both in Moses chapter 1. Uh, there are times we need the intimate God who's willing to come right into our messy world and help fix things. There are other times we need the infinite God that is awe-inspiring, uh, that we we want to adore and reverence and worship, yeah, He is both, and depending on where we happen to be, situation specific, the Lord will meet us where we need where, where we need Him, and that can be the infinite or the intimate. Luke's Jesus is more of the intimate, and John's Jesus is more of the infinite. He is He soars on eagle's wings, and and this is the Almighty Son of Almighty God. This book. Pray for the Spirit as we study it. This chapter as we begin John's Gospel in some ways is a tribute from a disciple whom Jesus loved to that Jesus whom this disciple loved. John the Beloved, as he gives us this account of a Savior he missed, a Savior he served, a Savior that he longed to return quickly. We'll see all of that when we get to the book of Revelation at the end of this year. But to see his message... Uh, I, I, I look forward to everything John will give us and today I hope will be an adequate, more than adequate, I hope it will be an inspiring introduction to what he's going to give us. Let me give you a little background on the Gospel of John like I did before about Matthew and Luke. Next week we'll do the same with Mark when we finally get to open his book. Uh, I'm going to introduce this gospel, though, with the help of a man named Eusebius. Eusebius was a church historian uh, that lived at the end of the third and the beginning of the fourth century uh, AD. Uh, and he's citing an earlier writer named Clement of Alexandria, who lived uh, at the beginning, or at the end of the first, second century, excuse me, at the beginning of the third. And this is what Eusebius quoting, or Clement said John, last of all, conscious that the outward facts had been set forth in the Gospels, was urged on by his disciples, and divinely moved by the Spirit, composed a spiritual gospel. Now that's a near perfect introduction to what we're going to be studying in the book of John. Notice what what Eusebius is giving us here. John, last of all, that most likely this was the last of the recorded gospels. If we believe that or if we understand that Mark was most likely written first, because it's the simple and most straightforward, then Matthew and Luke come along and use Mark as their as one of their resources uh, to expand upon it and give us their gospels. So here's John last of all. And then notice the next phrase, conscious that the outward facts had been set forth in the Gospels, namely the synoptic gospels. So you picture a John thinking, do I do I even need to write another one? Uh, hasn't all the important stuff already already been said? Well, his, his feeling was no. People already have Matthew and or Mark and or Luke. Hopefully they have all three and have this, you know, more, a fuller perspective of who Jesus is. But they're still missing out on oh, the degree of glory that needs to infuse our view of Jesus Christ. And so if you've already read Matthew, Mark, and or Luke, then buckle up and prepare to, <laughs> to soar forward and fly upward and understand the infinite side of Jesus. When it says he was urged on by his disciples, you picture these apostles going forth throughout the Mediterranean world, throughout the Roman Empire, teaching, preaching, blessing people with the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you picture John's disciples it's most likely, it's believed by scholars that this gospel was most likely written in Ephesus. So Paul's writing the letter to the Ephesians, John might be living there, and among these disciples that have gathered around him, really they're all disciples of Jesus. But as, as John, one of the chief apostles of Jesus, all these others trying to follow him because they know they can, that he can take them to Jesus, urging him, please write down what you know. Matthew was an apostle. So that's a close first-hand witness. If Mark is writing with the, under the direction of Peter. That's a wonderful uh, first-hand account, but second-hand version, since it's passed from Peter to, to Mark. Luke, wonderful historian, as we studied recently, yeah, but second-hand observer, uh, getting second-hand account, or trying to build upon first-hand accounts. But John, this is one of the big three. This is First Presidency. Yeah, Peter, James, and John. And for him, no wonder his disciples are saying, please give us your perspective on this. We'd love to know. And then my favorite part, he's divinely moved by the Spirit, and he composes a spiritual gospel. Remember, Simeon was defined by his spirituality, his closeness to the Holy Ghost. You could say the same thing about this beloved apostle, John. But to write a spiritual gospel... All the Gospels are spiritual. None of them are purely historical or merely biographical. There's theology woven throughout the the narrative. But you'll especially see that. You'll see the Spirit infusing the Gospel of John. Because it's trying to help uh, all of us readers understand just how lofty the Lord really is. I've mentioned in previous years of Scripture study that sometimes, I've seen this among young, young adults and youth, unfortunately, that when they see someone living a, a backward lifestyle or a wayward person, that, a prodigal son, let's put it that way, and, the, and when they come back, if, they, if they've repented and received the Lord's forgiveness and grace, they have such a deep love of the Lord. And sometimes the quote-unquote good kids that haven't strayed or wandered feel a degree of envy, thinking, I wish I loved Jesus like that. And unfortunately, because the model that they've seen, the example that they're, that they're looking at, was one of departure and return, they think, ah, that must be what it takes to really love the Lord. And yet that's a dangerous approach. What I have said to my students that, that might be contemplating such things is what gives you a sense of love and gratitude for Jesus is a recognition of all that he's done for you and all that he's going to have to do for you if, if we hope to become more like him. It's the distance between who we are and who he is that awakens within us this sense of awe and reverence and adoration. Gratitude, knowing that he's there to help bridge the gap. There's two ways to do that, though. There's two ways to recognize just how far from him we are. One, as you've seen with other friends who've left and returned, is to dig the pit deeper. I wouldn't suggest that one. The pit is deep enough. Uh, Maybe you don't quite realize just how much you need him, despite the fact you haven't committed any heinous crimes or or grave, grave, grosser sins, as Jacob called them. But the safer approach to recognizing your need for Jesus is not to deepen the pit. It's to raise the pedestal. So think of that. Pit versus pedestal. We're all in a pit already. You don't have to dig deeper. You don't have to commit more sin. Instead, come to know Jesus for who he really is. The exalted Christ. See him in his glory. And you will... He's not on this kind of low stepping stool. Yeah, a few steps above me. No, he is on a pedestal as high as the eye can reach. Even beyond it. He soars on eagle's wings. Thank you, John. And so, if you need to know just how much you need Jesus, rather than sin, study. Rather than lower yourself, raise him. And the Gospel of John will do an incredible job of that as it introduces us to the Savior. A few background details about this. Authorship, again, the disciple whom Jesus loved is usually how this author is described. Uh, He never calls himself by name, but talk about a beautiful self-description. Who am I? Oh, I'm just the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, I hate to break it to you, John, he loved them all. And so that doesn't narrow it down at all. We'll see the same thing when we we meet Lazarus in John chapter 11. But I love the fact that John here would say, well, who cares about little old me? Who cares about John? Uh, We should all care about Jesus. And so even more than my own first name, I want you to know me. I want to self-identify in relation to the Lord. My name doesn't matter quite as much as his. And as I take my, his name upon me at baptism, I become his. I become a disciple whom he loves and to whom he'll give his name. And so I'm a disciple who Jesus loved. And that's the one authoring this book. Uh, again, scholars are, are disagree on this because scholars always disagree about everything wondering might it have been written by somebody else could it have been a whole Johannine community that is that is forging this gospel well we'll take the apostle john uh, as our author and like i said most likely written in ephesus probably near the end of the first century last decade or so most likely the audience if matthew's writing as a jew writing to jews if mark is writing to Oh, persecuted Christians to help them understand that this is part of the plan. This is what we signed up for. Look at what Jesus went through. Uh, And or if he's writing to everyone, just this basic approach. Here's the good news. Listen up. If Luke is a Gentile writing to fellow Gentiles to fling open the doors wide so you can come into the kingdom of God. Then who's John's audience? Again, let Eusebius help us. If his disciples who already know the other stories, the other gospels. Give us something more. Then picture John writing this gospel to people who already believe in Jesus, but need to know him better. In fact, if you wanted to take a thesis statement for the gospel of of John, there's several you could choose from. But how about John 17, 3, where Jesus prays, This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. To truly know God. That's that Hebrew yada, That's that intimate relational knowledge. Truly know him. And that's what John is trying to accomplish. That's his aim. So that's his audience. You already know him. Uh, saber. Uh, facts and information to use the Spanish. Okay? You've read the other gospels. You probably can fill in the blanks. And do a storyline. Timeline. Multiple choice test. You name it. But do you really know him? Intimately, relationally, do you conocerle a él? That verb in Spanish is more of the intimate acquaintance, the relational kind of knowledge. And all gospel writers are trying to give you that. But John particularly, if you already know the storyline from the synoptics, oh, come let me breathe divinity into it and help you understand the Lord that we all love. One other possibility because not only is it the divine Christ, you also see the human Christ. Uh, you see him in that intercessory prayer in John 17 that I just quoted. Uh, you see the full spectrum in the book of John. And so some scholars suggest that perhaps the audience also included certain schismatic groups uh, that, are, that aren't proving contraries very well. The contrary of God is the infinite and the intimate. The contrary of Christ is the divine and the human We'll see them melded right here in John chapter 1. Uh, and if there's a, any schismatic group that ends up honoring one side at the expense of the other, they've uncoupled the contrary. And those that say, oh, he's only divine. Well, you no, know, you need to know that his feet got down on, on dirt level. There's a human side of Christ. And for those that erred on the opposite extreme, that just saw Jesus as a, a, a mere mortal messiah. Uh, as a, a wandering itinerant preacher and not much more, then ah, you missed out on the divine side of Jesus. And John will infuse his gospel with that. Okay? So, so keep those in mind as we move forward. As far as his aim to show Christians the Father by introducing the divine Son. Ah, is there faith in Christ? Do you know who he is and who he's connected to and who he's trying to connect us to? Again, true knowledge of the Father and the Son is what constitutes eternal life. A few other details about the book of John that you might be able to recognize his fingerprints on. He emphasizes Jesus' identity as the Son who reveals the Father. And to see the Father through the Son, we'll see that clearly in John chapter 14, Uh, I mentioned this before, that in Divinity School you learn all kinds of interesting vocabulary words, like liturgy, and homiletics, and hermeneutic, and exegesis. Well, uh, Christology is the one that we need to focus on for a moment here, which, ology, the study of, Christology, it's the study of Christ. Is there anything better to study than that? Well, we speak of high Christology and low Christology. And that's a matter of, at any given moment, which side of Jesus, which half of the contrary are you emphasizing? And low Christology makes him more approachable, more human. High Christology makes him more infinite, more divine. And of all the Gospels, John's eagle is a high Christology. Okay, uh, Matthew's, M- Mark's would be more... An interesting combination. Luke's will be lower, so it's more approachable to Gentiles. But, but to understand the Jesus, the high Christology of John, it's a powerful thing. Uh, vocabulary-wise, if you're reading this in Greek, more power to you, uh, his vocabulary is more simple than Luke's. Luke's is more polished. But his theology is, is the deepest of them all. So incredibly... In some ways, this is... oh Some, some genius that still speaks like a common person, so he's approachable. I'm trying to approach you so I can introduce you to the seemingly unapproachable God. So my theology will be high, but my, my vocabulary, my approach will be low. That to me is actually an inspiring approach for any teacher. That if I can reach high enough to, to almost get a, get a grasp on God... But also be low enough that anyone I talk to can understand what I'm trying to say. I mean, have you ever tried to learn from someone who's so far above you that, yeah, you know they understand everything, but you can't understand anything they say. And then others that are just so much on your level that, yeah, I understand everything that they say, but I already knew everything they said. To find somebody that's kind of in the middle, that can reach up and reach out, and that doesn't come across as any better than you, but you know they've paid a price to learn some things that they want to share with you. That's always been my goal as a teacher. And that's John's goal too. It's his personality. It's his gift. And so high Christology but but approachable language as far as what he's trying to convey. There's a few key themes that John dwells on at length. Life and light are two of the big ones. Uh, Belief and abiding are another pair. Uh, We'll see some of that today, and we'll see much of it later on. But this stay with me, believe in the Lord, abide with Him uh, that's what an invitation that's necessary in our day. He will deal with strong dualism, where you're either on God's side or on the world's side. And Jesus will emphasize that at length in the Last Supper and, and his kind of final sermon on the way to Gethsemane. Yeah, uh, it's things that John will actually emphasize again when he writes those three letters of John, the epistles, first, second, and third John that we'll study near the end of our year. Uh, there are miracles throughout the book of John that he emphasizes to help reveal Christ's true identity. And there are certain spiritual symbols that he dwells on at length, like water, like light, like bread, like shepherd. Jesus as the gate that opens the door for us to come into. There's certain I am statements that I'll, rep- I'll, I'll list in just a moment. But you see here in the book of John, Christ being much more willing to reveal himself for all that he really is. You don't see that as much in the book of Mark, for example. Mark, uh, they call it the messianic secret, where Jesus will go perform a miracle and then say, don't tell anybody about this. Whereas in the book of John, do you have any idea who I am? I am, and he reveals it. The world will know. Again, if John's writing to people who already know the Lord, well, then know him better. And there's this full revelation. He'll focus more, John will focus more on the disciples than on the apostles, which I think is interesting. Uh, by now, there's more far more disciples of Christ than there are apostles. As the apostles have spread, they're beginning to be martyred. Uh, many already have been. And so to help people see themselves in the gospel story as disciples, fellow disciples of Christ. And then one other detail is that there's a more set chronology in the book of John than what you'll see in the synoptics. In the synoptic gospels, it's really hard to tell the passage of time. Uh, And some have even suggested, man, you read Matthew, Mark, or Luke, the, the whole ministry of Jesus could have lasted like a year. This is kind of quick. And yet in the book of John, it's much more clear that he, mentioned, he it focuses on the, the Passover. There's Jewish festivals that are brought up in the book of John, but particularly the Passover, and he mentions three. So that's where we get this sense of a three-year ministry, which is more logical because it's going to take a while to truly gather the kinds of mass multitudes that Jesus does throughout the course of his ministry. Now, let me just point out, and then we'll get into the text itself, the way that the book of John is organized there is a prologue in chapter 1 and an epilogue in chapter 21. So, kind of intro and then conclusion. And then in the middle, they refer to them as two different books. But it's kind of half a book each. The first 11 chapters, is they, they call it the book of signs. And then 12 through 20, they call it the book of glory. In, the first, in those first 10 chapters, from 2 to 11, you see the the narrative revolve around seven major miracles. There's a lot of significant sermons uh, intermixed within them as well. But these major miracles, here's the seven signs. And some would say, well, there's an eighth here, or maybe there's a ninth there. There's a lot. And depending on how you number, uh, I don't think it's arbitrary, though, to see seven major signs when you think of seven as this symbolic number for fullness and totality and completion. The first was turning water into wine that only John talks about. The second was healing the nobleman's son. Uh, The synoptics talk about that, but John gives it an emphasis as well. The third is healing the man at the pool of Bethesda. Such a beautiful account that John gives us. The fourth sign, the fourth major miracle, is the feeding of the 5,000. The synoptic gospels will mention this as well, but John treats it with such a depth with such a massive sermon to follow, it's really a significant part of the book of John. The fifth is Jesus walking on the water, which everybody wants to talk about, but John gives us some added detail that the others don't. The sixth is when Jesus heals a man born blind, which again is a miracle that's worth an entire chapter. And then the seventh, another chapter was worth of, of focus here, is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And as I pondered these seven, it was interesting to realize the identities of Jesus and, and the power of Christ that is made manifest through these seven signs. If they're trying to come collectively, all seven, giving us a complete and total view of Jesus, how's this? He is the bread of life. That was sign number four, feeding the 5,000. He's also the living water. That's the first sign, turning water into wine. He's the light of the world, giving the blind man sight. And he's the life of the world, healing the nobleman's son. He lifts us out of our fallen state. There's this lame man at the pool of Bethesda. And what gave him the power to do so? The fact that he rises above the chaos of sin. There's him walking on the water. And he rises above the devastation of death. There's calling Lazarus back from the grave itself. That's who we worship. And the portrait John paints of him is breathtaking. If that's the book of signs, then what do we see in the book of glory? Well, the focal point is the Last Supper. John spends more time on the Last Supper than anything else in his gospel. And far more time there than anything Matthew, Mark, and Luke remember. That was... As far as I can tell, that was the most important or most meaningful or most eagerly remembered time that John spent with Jesus there at the Last Supper and, the, and those final messages Jesus preached on the way to Gethsemane and the cross. So we see the Last Supper. We see what they call the farewell discourse on the way to Gethsemane. And then we have the passion and resurrection narratives. Passion is the technical term for the, crucif- the suffering and death of Jesus. So Gethsemane and Calvary together. And then Empty Tomb. And the way John, oh, the way he gives it to us in the epilogue, in chapter 21, is, is so wonderful. Because you can tell he's, he's gearing us up for a sequel we'll see that when we get to the end of the Gospels, but, but it's such a masterpiece. "I love, I love the Book of John. And like I mentioned before, these "I am" statements of who is Jesus? Well, here's the seven. It's an interesting number again, right? The seven miracles. And, how, and now the seven "I am statements. Jesus very boldly pronounces and declares, "I am the bread of life. Later, "I am the light of the world. Still later, "I am the door." And I am the good shepherd. In conjunction with the raising of Lazarus, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Still later, he tells his apostles, I am the way, the truth and the life. And on the way to Gethsemane, passing gardens left and right, he says, I am the true vine. He's all of those things and so much more. And so let's turn to John to get this introduction. Now, how would you begin if you're a gospel writer? We saw Matthew's beginning. Well, let's start with genealogy because that's what a Jewish audience will expect. With Luke, oh, let's talk about forerunning. Let's talk about highway construction. Let's introduce them to John the Baptist to help them see these Gentiles that I'm writing to, that he's opening the door and building the the highway and trying to let Jesus come quickly, but you can come quickly to Christ as well. He's going to talk about an old, an old, old couple, Zacharias and Elizabeth, to say they thought it was too late for them, too. But it's not. It wasn't. And neither is it too late for you Gentiles reading this book. He's reaching out to you all. Well, uh, Mark, will see his beginning next week, so I won't, uh, I won't steal from his thunder. But John's, how do I begin? Oh, let's go back way back, not just back to Christ's forerunner, nice try Luke, not just back to Jesus' ancestry, good try Matthew let's go back to the very beginning in in fact let's go back to before the beginning, let's see Christ not just birth not not, not just ministry, that'll be Mark, not just birth uh, that's Luke or or forerunner, not just genealogy that's Matthew, let's go pre-mortality shall we? Let's let's blow the doors off this thing and go high Christology from the very first verse and rewind the clock even before clocks were made uh, when there was no time and yet God existed as did his son. So John chapter 1 verse 1 In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Oh, there's an epic introduction, that's the one. Some even refer to it as a hymn. Picture John, picture all creation singing praise to the Word of God, the Son of God. And this is these are the opening notes. Now notice his the beginning speaks of the beginning. And if you were to go around to just about anybody, any Jew or any Christian, and say, in the beginning, they're probably going to finish the statement, not quoting John 1, Christians might, but rather Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John knows people are going to think that. And he wants them to think that. And so, with this subtle illusion, well, maybe not so subtle, uh, he is grounding things back in Genesis. Can we start things all over again? When we study the beginning of Matthew, we get a sense that Matthew is trying to teach Jews on, along a, the, a kind of a framework of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But John has an even bigger picture in mind. So, let's go back to creation and even back before that and see that in the beginning, as God was beginning to contemplate creation of heaven and earth, Christ already existed. But here he's referred to as the Word. In the beginning was the Word. John wants to introduce you to the pre-mortal Christ, but he uses an interesting title there. And this is capital W, Word. Well done, King James translators, with that. Now, speaking of translations, uh, when I was on my mission... I remember I was uh, tracting, I believe, and met a guy, and he showed some interest. We were talking, and after the end of the first discussion, he was like, Hey, you guys, you, you, uh, you know, misioneros, you, you guys don't drink coffee, do you? And we're like, no. Uh, How did you know that? We just met you. We'll talk about that in a later discussion. Hold out. They're all good. Uh, But how how did you know that Latter-day Saints don't drink coffee? And his answer shocked me. He said, oh, I heard it on a song on the radio. And I'm like, what? I, I had no idea that we were producing Word of Wisdom uh, r- albums. I mean, bring it on. Well, it wasn't that. He, he pulled out this CD. I actually bought myself a copy because I was so fascinated by it. It was, I mean, this is mid-90s. So it's, it's a Spanish singer that probably nobody's ever heard of. Uh, his name was Ricardo Arjona. I still remember that. And it was in a song that was, the title was classic. It was called, Jesús es Verbo, no sustantivo. And the line that he was singing that caught the ear of uh, of this investigator was, Y si tomas café, es pecado, dice los mormones. Which translated, and if you drink coffee, that's a sin, say the Mormons. And in the song, he's actually poking fun of that. Uh, or kind of dismissing it. It's like, can you believe that? That Mormons would say that coffee is sinful? Come on, everybody drinks coffee. Uh, and that it could have offended me. But in the context, I actually liked what the, what, this, what this singer was trying to convey. Because it was all based on the title. Jesus es verbo, no sustantivo. means, literally, Jesus is a verb, not a noun. Verbo, verb. Sustantivo, noun. And what he was trying to convey is that Jesus was, to be true Christianity is not just something you say, it's something you live. It's not just something you believe. It's a great principle. It's not just a bunch of nouns that you can check the box and give affirmation to, like, oh yeah, I believe that, I believe that. And, it, and Christianity is all these things. No. Christianity is all these deeds, it's something that you do, it's a verb and I loved that and so that's why again without a true understanding of the word of wisdom and what it's for and, and, and the inspiration behind it then it would be easy to mis- misinterpret it and simply dismiss it as what one more I mean, talk about trying to to nitpick little things and make them sinful and you can't do that come on wouldn't Jesus care more about how you treat other people and the kind of life you live to which we would say absolutely the word of wisdom is just part of that life he's asking us to live because it brings the spirit so we can live it more fully the word of wisdom is a verb. It's not a mere noun. But you understand what I'm trying to convey here. It's a powerful principle. Now, the the other genius of behind that title is that it was a play on words from John chapter 1 verse 1. Because in Spanish, the word for word is palabra. That's what every missionary is taught, okay? So we're here to teach the word, we're here to teach la palabra. But in John chapter 1 verse 1, most Spanish translations do not use palabra for the word because it doesn't quite convey the sense of what Jesus is here. Instead, it will say, en el principio, in the beginning, think Genesis, era el verbo. It was the verb. It was the, the real word, the word that does things. That's what verbs are, right? They do, they act. And so instead of just a palabra, a noun kind of word, it's there inert on the page. Instead, let's infuse it with life. Let's breathe life into it. Breathe, wind, spirit. That's back to creation, right? And God, I mean, think about this. God, the spirit of God moved upon the waters. And spirit in Hebrew is the same word for wind. It's the same word for breath. He's breathing the breath of life into things. And when you speak, breath comes out. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. What did he use? He used words. But active words. Words with agency. Words with power. Words that could create and do. They were verbs. Let there be light. He spake it into existence. Let the sun, moon, stars appear. Let the sea and land separate. He spoke, he breathed the breath of life into chaos. And order came forth. (laughs) This is breathtaking. Pun intended. Uh, To understand what that verb is doing. In fact, some Spanish translations make it even more epic. Instead of just saying, En el principio era el verbo. In the beginning there, there was the word. It said they, some, some say, en el principio, ya existía el verbo. In the beginning, the word already existed. So by the time creation began, of course the creator was already present. Ya existía. He already existed. That divine word of God. If you want to go on in the Spanish, by the way, I, I love this language. Uh, it says, when, when in English we read, and the word was with God, there seems to be a separation there, but he's with God. And then the next, and the word was God, no separation there. Uh, in Spanish, y el verbo estaba con Dios, y el verbo era Dios. That, that uses both estar and ser. And for all of you beginning Spanish students, it's such a nightmare to try to tease out the differences between ser and estar because they're both the the verb to be. But if estar is to be the location and some other things, and ser is more true identity, permanence, then talk about Jesus Christ deserving both verbs. He's both an estar and a ser. He estaba con Dios. He was with God. And was willing to leave him to come down to estar con nosotros, to be with us. But he also era Dios. He was God and is God and will forever be God. Now be careful. You can see where Trinitarians would look at that and go, oh, see? Yeah, that's all the same. The word is God. He was God. It's all one. And this other, he was with God. Well, we're going to have to do some explaining there. Latter-day Saints are reverse. Of course, he's with God. Christ, the the Son and the Father, separate, distinct beings. And it's the second we we have to do some more explaining. Well, yes, but in his premortal glory, his divinity, which he had and which he was willing to step away from, to not just be with God, but then to be with us. And not just to be God, but to be us. I think there's a powerful contrary being hinted at there in John chapter 1, verse 1. And it's the humanity and divinity of Jesus. It's the premortality and the mortality of Christ. Such powerful, powerful things. Uh, Again, and if we say one more thing about creation, about... We hit this when we studied Genesis chapter 1 last year. But again, in the beginning, God said let there be light if he's saying he's using words and the word of god is jesus that verb that does things that acts and brings things into action themselves so when god said there's jesus let there be light remember the sun moon stars haven't been created yet so what light are we talking about well the light of christ so in that whole beginning, in the beginning God said, there goes the word, there goes Christ. Let there be light, there is Christ, the light of the world. No wonder he's the father of heaven and earth. He's speaking it into existence. I'm, I have no talent artistically. And when, people, when I meet an artist, I'm like, ooh, what's your favorite medium? What do you create with? And some create with oils, some create with watercolor, some create with pen and ink, some with pencil. Some with with pixels, uh, with electronic design. Some create with stone. I told you about the student that created with crackers at one point. Uh, There's no shortage of materials that can be used. Well, if I can create anything, it's with words. And that's my hope as a teacher, to paint a verbal picture that can act upon those who hear. And so, if Christ is the creative agent of God the Father, the Father is the architect, Christ is the general contractor, then the Father can speak, He sends out words, and those words create pictures in our mind. They're spiritual creation that then is followed by physical creation. Are we deep enough in John chapter 1, verse 1 yet? I mean, you could spend months teasing out the nuances of this one initial verse. One last thing I'll say from the Greek. We saw English. We saw it's capital W and not just some word on the page. We saw it in Spanish. It's verbo, verb, action. But in Greek, best of all, it's logos. And logos can mean merely a word on a page. It's a very commonly used term throughout the New Testament. And so often it's just Jesus will say something and the apostles will say something or they're writing something down and words are being used. So Logos. But if you were to kind of give some deeper meaning to it, kind of really capitalize the concept, then Logos goes so far beyond a printed or spoken word. It is a principle of logic and of reason. It is philosophically from, I mean, if you asked a Greek philosopher what Logos is, they're not going to just say, oh, it's just a word. In fact, if you ask Aristotle, for example, who wrote an entire book on rhetoric, the, the Aristotelian appeals, they are called, are logos, ethos, and pathos. And pathos is, it's where we get the word pathetic and, and, and pathogen. It's feeling, it's suffering, uh, it's where we get passion, and so on. And so, what you get in pathos as a, as a rhetorical form is, I want my hearers to feel certain things, and so I, I'm in a negative way. I'm going to play upon the emotions. I really want to be a heart, uh, you know, a, a tearjerker and play on the heartstrings. Or beyond that, there is an emotional side of things, and I want to reach the heart of my hearers so that they feel the importance of what this, of what I'm, what I'm saying. And that's fine. That's good. That's important. God speaks to the heart as well as the mind. That's pathos. If ethos then is the authority of the speaker. And some, are, some speakers are so monotone, uh, but you got to listen to them because of the authority that they bear. It's important. Uh, they're important, so their message must be. And often when you hear somebody start uh, their talk with a joke, for example, they're trying to ingratiate themselves with their audience, and so that's an appeal to ethos. It's about me as a speaker. But logos, in many ways, is the most important of all three because it's what it's the it's the one that can truly stand alone if need be, because logos is the argument itself, it is the logic think logos logic l o g same beginning it's the logic of the argument it's it's tr- it's just true capital t you can't argue against it, this is what it is, and even if I have no ethos as a speaker i mean who the who the heck am i who cares but <laughs> Don't pay attention to me, but pay attention to this word, this logos. It's true, no matter who is trying to teach it to you. And don't even worry about pathos. If you can't, you shouldn't have to, I shouldn't have to aim to the emotion. This should just strike a chord in the mind where it just clicks and you know that it's true. That's logos. And of all three Aristotelian appeals in rhetoric, that's the one that people have the hardest time gainsaying. They can t- take a swing or a swipe at ethos, saying, you've got nothing important to say. You just, people think you're important, so they'll listen to you. It's like when people in, oh, in Hollywood are weighing in on, on issues that they don't really know anything about, but I'm famous so I can talk about it. Well, really? You'll see this sometimes if when a famous author, if you look at a book jacket or a, a book cover, if the author's name is bigger than the title's name, then ethos has begun to, to outgain uh, out logos. And people are like, I don't even care what they're writing about. I love that author and I'll read anything that they say. Uh, and, and like I said, they'll take swipes at pathos. Like, are you just playing on my emotion? Are you just trying to work me up into a frenzy so I'll do whatever you say? A kind of demagoguery instead of clear, compelling logic. But that's the one nobody seems to say a word against. And Jesus is the Logos. He is God's opening argument and closing argument and every word of testimony in between. When God presented his plan in premortality, when the Father did, he did not ask, what shall we do? He asked, whom shall I send? And who did he send? His word. His creative agent. His argument. This is the plan. This is what will work. There's no other way to return to be with me and be like, become like me than this way through creation, fall, atonement. So whom shall I send to atone and to create and to help you navigate the fall? I'll send my word, my closing argument. In fact, how else do we use the word word? When we stick our hand out and let's shake on it, I'll give you my word. What was the father doing in premortality? He was extending a covenant to us all a covenant that, yes, we would leave, but yes, there'd be a way for us to come home. I promise you that. I will give you my word that I will not leave you stranded in mortality. I won't leave you stranded in your sins. I will send you a Savior. You have my word on it. And here's the word. Let me introduce you to him. Not just so you see it on the dotted line, so that you see him personifying the covenant personifying the Word of God. That's who John is introducing us to. And it's a glorious introduction. Now, before we go on to verse 2, and I promise I won't spend that much time on any other verse in this chapter, okay? but that one deserves it. Before we go to verse 2, though, John chapter 1 is one of the chapters with more Joseph Smith translation than practically anything else you'll see in in the New Testament. Uh, And it, it deserves it. Jo- Joseph, you can picture him poring over these pages and savoring every sentence. What is, is there anything else you want to give me here? Now, I think sometimes when we study the Joseph Smith translation, we think, oh, the King James is just flat out wrong and the JST is here to correct it. Now, sometimes that's the case. In the book of Exodus, when it kept saying that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it's like, no, he wouldn't do that. We have our agency. Uh, God's not not yanking Pharaoh's chain here and saying, oh, yeah, let my people go. But not really. That makes no sense. So JST corrects that. No, Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. When the JST says that Luke sent out his daughters so that the wicked men of Sodom could abuse them, no, that's just flat out wrong. And the JST corrects it. But there are so many other places in the JST where they don't, it doesn't have to replace the King James. Instead, it can amplify it, it might clarify it, but again, it just might give a second perspective, both of which can be meaningful. Remember what we saw in section 35 of the Doctrine and Covenants when the Lord calls Sidney Rigdon to help as a scribe for the JST? And the way he describes the JST is, I want to give you the scriptures as they are had in my own bosom. That's beautiful. Now, much of my life I used to picture that as, well, that's the Lord picking up the scriptures and holding them close to his chest. It's his set. So yeah, that's Joseph correcting the actual text of it all. We, are having, we have on earth now through the JST exactly the way the scriptures are written in, on, in God's set that he's got there on his coffee table. His hot chocolate table. Uh, the, the but the thing is, it's not. Sometimes that's the case. But what else? If you have something written in your own bosom, that's the fleshy tables of the heart. It doesn't have to be written down. It's part of me. And things that are part of you can change, in terms of how you express them. And the way I express my love to my wife one day is different than the next day. If it's the same thing every day and it's just wrote and memorized, then it might lose some of its power. But if it's the word of God as written on God's own heart, as held in his own bosom, then yeah, it might come out one way. And the King James translators give it that, and then Joseph studies it and reads it and ponders it and taps into God's own heart also and says oh this is another way to put that as well you see this most clearly in section 128 of the Doctrine and Covenants when Joseph quotes He's teaching work for the dead and he quotes Malachi 4 which we just studied a few weeks ago in our Old Testament year and he quotes the Malachi version even though he had a better version quote unquote from the angel Moroni and he admits it I could have given you a plainer translation I've got one from the angel but this one's good enough. I like the way Malachi gives it to us in the King James translation as well. So in, if you're studying this, and it's, it's really helpful to have them side by side if you can, to have John chapter 1 open and to have the JST of John chapter 1 open. I think it's one of your, your very first footnotes on the page where it'll say, yeah, the first 34 verses are in the appendix. Go check them out. I'll try to help uh, walk us through side by side. But I don't want... There will be a couple places today where, yeah, there's a correction that was necessary. But I would say, more, for most of today, hold on to them both. Okay? Just like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have some differences, but hold on to all four because they're giving us different perspectives. Joseph and John are giving us some different perspective as well. And here's the, the JST of John chapter 1, verse 1. Some interesting differences here. In the beginning, so still think Genesis, was the gospel preached through the Son, and the gospel was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Son was with God, and the Son was of God. How interesting changes there. More than just, not just, but more than premortality, we really are seeing creation in gospel terms and not just in Jesus terms. And that we see clearly, not so much in Genesis, but in the book of Moses, which again is Joseph's mid-translation. To see that the gospel was preached in pre-mortality and we chose to and fought to accept that plan. The gospel was there from the very beginning. The good news. It's not just that Jesus existed in premortality. It's that the good news of the whole plan of which he was the central part, that existed too. That was with God. And it was of God. It came from him. That word, that good news that I won't leave you stranded in sin. That mortality is not being marooned. (laughs) You're not being shanghaied there. Okay? No, the gospel, the good news, is that I will send my son. Now you see why how, why this is such an overlap. Then, because isn't Jesus the gospel? The, it's his gospel, but he is the gospel. Yeah, he's sharing the good news, but the good news is about him. And so you can see just how synonymous they are. But I do love that Joseph adds this wrinkle. Don't just see him as the person. See him with all that that entails. And the good news of the gospel itself. This is how the the father and the son teaching Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. This is that original messianic prophecy about the serpent's head being crushed by the seed of the woman. There's good news. There's the gospel from the very beginning. That is Adam and Eve being made one flesh before death even entered the world which means eternal families was meant to be the default. That's part of the gospel. That's part of the good news. And that was in the beginning as well, in the Garden of Eden, where as soon as they left and they began teaching these things to their children, actually rewind just a click, as they're offering sacrifice when commanded, and the angel comes to explain its symbolism, to do all things in the similitude of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And everything we see, this is Moses chapter 6 when Adam and Eve are already cast out of the garden and yet they're told, everything is created and made to bear witness of me. I left souvenirs and reminders, echoes of Eden in everything you'll see in its aftermath. Remember me. Look around. (laughs) Everything will, will point in my direction. That's the gospel. That's the good news, too. And then when they preached all these things, made all these things known to their sons and their daughters, that's preaching the gospel as well. And so to have the gospel preached through the Son from the very start, John is basically saying, this is good news. It's a gospel, but it's old news. It's a, an everlasting covenant. We're just renewing it right here. And to see that connection between the word was with the son, the son was with God, the son was of God. It reminds me of the oath and covenant of the priesthood, that if you accept God's servants who are giving you his word, then you've accepted the son. And if you've accepted the son, you've accepted the father. And if you've accepted the father, you've accepted all that the father has. That's what he wants to give you. That's with God and of God. The chance through Christ to become like him. So very powerful. All of that summed up in a sentence let's go on to the next one verse 2 and 3 the same was in the beginning with God all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made if you thought in the beginning pointed you to creation this one does explicitly anything that was made anything that was created came through him no wonder we should see him in every leaf and tree No wonder all things are created and made to bear witness of him because they were made by him. No wonder when Jesus comes and begins teaching during his mortal ministry, he calls upon creation itself as his visual aids. Consider the lilies or look at the sparrows or a sower went forth to sow. Some people have said, oh yeah, Jesus was a genius because he just looked at everything around him and was able to turn it into a lesson. And that's true. But I think more insightful is the realization that, wait a minute, he's not just the teacher, he's the creator. So like any good teacher, what was he doing? Setting up the classroom in advance. And so, ooh, I want to teach about sparrows someday. I should probably create some. I want, I want them to consider the lilies in that one lesson. So I love making lilies. Let's, let's do some creating here. And that's what John is hinting at here. More than hinting. He's boldly declaring it. Christ is the Christ of creation. And if you look at the artwork, if you, if you look close enough, you can, all, you can almost always make out the signature of the artist themselves. That's definitely true of creation. In verse 4 and 5, In him was life, and the life was the light of men and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Those two verses will describe so much of what we're going to see throughout the rest of the Gospel of John, as well as Matthew, Mark, and Luke. To see him personified as life and light, those two go together well, right? Because without the light of the sun, there is no life upon this planet. So for Christ to be both, to allow you to see to infuse the world with meaning and with light and with life and yet to do it in a world that is itself shadowed enshrouded in darkness no wonder the darkness didn't comprehend the light in fact even worse it didn't want to have anything to do with it because darkness can't can't remain when light is present When light comes, darkness flees. So no wonder darkness is trying to keep the light at bay. What's happening here, as we'll see throughout these Gospels, is the opposition that Jesus is forced to face. And John, more than anybody else, puts it on a cosmic scale. That it's not just Jesus against the Jewish leaders. This is Christ against the powers of darkness. Some of the things that Jesus will say, who are really strongly worded, when he connects his mortal opposition to his premortal opposition, and says, "Oh yeah, you're of the you're children, you're the sons of the devil. You're just like him." It's strong language that we'll see later on in the Book of John, but this oppositionality comes from the very beginning, and it's. It's because darkness doesn't want to comprehend light. Now, there's some JST uh, addition here that I think is fascinating. It's not just in him was life and the life was the light of men. JST says in him was the gospel and the gospel was the life and the life was the light of men. When it speaks of the light shining in darkness, JST adds in the world. So let's make this as clear as we possibly can. The darkness is the world. And Jesus is coming into the world to shine amidst the the shadows. And when the King James says, The darkness comprehended it not, the JST says, The world perceiveth it not. The world just doesn't get it. They don't get the gospel. And because they don't get the gospel, they don't get Christ. They don't understand him. They don't perceive it, which is interesting. It's not just that they don't comprehend the... The darkness doesn't comprehend the light. It's like, I don't get that. That's weird. It's all shiny. It's it's that the world chooses not to perceive it. I don't want to see what the light is shining upon. Can you see why that would matter so much to Joseph Smith and the early saints? Because bringing the gospel to light is the purpose of the restoration. It's it's the point of, of what Joseph is trying to accomplish. It's why the Lord called him to show that it's not just that Jesus is here, but his gospel is too, and he's returning it to the earth. Again, in this final dispensation, light will shine in darkness. Will the world choose to perceive it? Or will they turn a blind eye Rather, preferring to be in, in darkness, willfully blind. That's what we're up against. One other way to see this is if the light and life are synonymous in Christ and in his gospel, then the beautiful thing about the light is let me show you, let me shine a light on my life so that you see what life is supposed to look like. We'll see that more clearly described in just a few verses later. Uh, But it's beautiful. For Christ to come to show us the way. Let me shine a light on myself. I am the light of the world. You can't miss it. And and by seeing me, you'll see what your life should look like. Now, let me go on a quick field trip to the Doctrine and Covenants here. Uh, There's so much of John chapter 1 that infuses and informs revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants. And this one's really important because if we see light and life as synonymous and they're both synonymous with the gospel and they're both synonymous with Christ, that's all coming together. Then turn to section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, this is a great priesthood focused revelation. But look at verse 45 through 47. And how's this for a list of synonyms? Very similar to what we just saw from John. DNC and c 8445, for the word of the Lord is truth. How's that for capital W and capital T? How's that for Logos? There's the argument. Here's God's uh, his promise, his covenant. The word of the Lord is truth, and whatsoever is truth is light. And whatsoever is light is spirit, even the spirit of Jesus Christ. And the spirit giveth light to every man that cometh into the world. Light shining into darkness. You can bring it with you. You'll have your own flashlight because you're going to be in a dark world. You'll want one. And the Spirit enlighteneth every man through the world that hearkeneth to the voice of the Spirit. Spirit's what adds the the batteries. He kind of keeps cranking up the juice so that the light will keep on shining. And, next verse, everyone that hearkeneth to the voice of the Spirit cometh unto God, even the Father. When we talked about that verse at length two years ago, it was this idea of God has placed a homing beacon within within every one of us. And that is our conscience. That is the light of Christ. And then that's on our end. On his end he has this tuning fork of truth of spirit, of light, of Jesus, of word. And whenever he hits that tuning fork it sends out this frequency of faith that it will resonate with us since within us is the light of Christ. Light cleaveth unto light. We'll see also in the Doctrine and Covenants. The truth and truth embrace one another. It's like approaching like. And what we're seeing here is what we're made of. What's within us is meant to draw us to what God is. So that someday we can be with him and more like him. What I love about the way that passage begins, though, is with the synonyms. Because as I've tried to work with people that are struggling in their faith, that are grappling between the amount of light and darkness within them and which side they are beginning to gravitate toward Uh, am I still feeling the resonant frequency when, when God hits the tuning fork well listen when you look at the list word truth light spirit Jesus which of those will be most effective for a person helping them come into God which will be most approachable for them? For some, give me truth. Just straight up, say it like it is. Or give me word, show me the scripture and I'll live it. For others, it's like, whoa, you can't tell me what I'm I'm supposed to do. For some, even using an idea that there's such a thing as truth might be off-putting, like, "Eh, it's all relative, what are you talking about? Okay, I guess I won't start with that. For some, fellow Christians, for example, start with Jesus. And you don't have to bring up every revealed word quite yet. Just start with Christ, common beliefs. For those that are not Christian and don't care to be, then just help them feel the Spirit. Help them see some light and bring light and life into their life. Pretty soon they'll start wondering where it's coming from and they'll want more. You understand that the beauty of the synonyms here is pick whichever one someone else might be most open to receive because by getting one they're starting to open themselves to all the others and it can snowball into an acceptance of every single one that's the homing beacon that's the tuning, that's the tuning fork that's the resonant frequency that's growing up in God and being drawn to him and I, I get a sense that John is hinting at all of that as well and, and this actually or vice versa John gave it to us first the Lord is alluding to that in what we see in section 84 you get more of that in the next couple verses section 84 verse 49 to 51 see if this rings a bell from john chapter 1 the whole world lieth in sin and groaneth under darkness and under the bondage of sin now do you sense the light shining into darkness but the darkness comprehending it not the gospel going into the world but the world perceiving it not then the passage says, and by this you may know that they are under the bondage of sin because they come not unto me for whoso cometh not unto me is under the bondage of sin. That's missing out on the resonant frequency. That's having dulled or, or masked or buried under a weight of sin or, or care or whatever else it might be your own homing beacon to the point that the resonant frequency is all around you. You just can't sense it. You can't comprehend it. You can't perceive it. And that's bondage to something. Something that's not letting us fill the measure of our creation. And simply be drawn to God like iron filings to a magnet. That's how we're made. Now back to John, chapter 1. Verse 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, don't get confused here. This is not John the Apostle we're talking about. It's not John the Beloved, John the Revelator. This is John the Baptist. So, in a way, John the Gospel writer is going to follow Luke's lead and, and start out with forerunning, with highway construction. Let's get to know John before we get to know the mortal Jesus. The big difference is, but you already know the pre-mortal Jesus. Okay. Keep reading. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. Just look at him. Know who he is. That's what John is going to prepare the people for. You've got to recognize Christ when he comes, and I'll show him to you. Because if you believe, all things can come to those who believe. Now, what John is trying to do here, there's a JST of of this, by the way, that like we've seen so many times already in the first five verses, yes, there's the capital W, Word of God, Jesus himself. But there's also the lowercase word, the word about him. And that's the gospel. That's the good news that's pointing people, drawing people to him. And since that's the point and purpose of the restoration, Joseph's going to bring it up every chance that he can. And so he does it here as well. So it's not just the same came for a witness. JST, the same came into the world for a witness. John was willing to enter the darkness himself, to, to shine his feeble flashlight first, knowing that the spotlight, the light of the world would be following shortly thereafter. The same came into the world for a witness to bear witness of the light, to bear record of the gospel through the sun unto all that all men through him might believe. That's how Joseph rereads this it's bearing record of Christ but also record of the gospel that Christ revealed and restored in the latter days verse 8 then says of John he was not that light but was sent to bear witness of that light and one of my favorite things about John the Baptist is that he truly knew the difference don't look at me look at him I, I am the museum tour guide. I'm not the main attraction. I am the signpost, not the final destination. I'm the preparer of the way, but he's the way and the truth and the life. So come unto him. I'm just pointing you in his direction. Every time you see John, keep an eye out for that in the things that he says about himself that are meant to wean people off of him and onto his successor and his superior. The light of the world. I'm not that light. He is. I just came to bear witness of it. We can do the same. I think too often when we are trying to show people the portrait of Jesus we're standing right in front of it and, and the poor people we're trying to show it to are like oh, I love the explanation. Could you do it from the side? I'd love to hear what you have to say uh, but I, I can't actually see what you're trying to help me <laughs> focus on. Okay? There's an irony there. It's, a, it's a, an occupational hazard of teaching and teachers, we've got to get out of the way so people can see what they're actually looking at. John is so good at that. Then verse 9 through 11, he bears witness of that light. And what was that light? That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Did we get hints of that back in section 84, right? That's the homing beacon that's placed within us. It lights every man that cometh into the world. JST clarifies it. Even the Son of God, that's who we're talking about. Back to King James. He was in the world, that world of darkness. The world was made by him, and the world knew him not. And then echo that with a different ang- from a different angle. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And those last two lines are brutally ironic. Elder Maxwell said that irony is the hard crust on the bread of adversity. The bread itself is bad. Adversity is rough. I mean, sour, it's the sourest of sourdough. But to have a crust on the outside that just shreds the roof of your mouth, that's when adversity becomes ironic. And there's irony there. That Jesus made the world, and he is the light of the world. And that light came into the world, but by then the world had grown dark. The world created by light itself had become a realm of darkness that comprehended not, that rejected light whenever it came. You'll see that, by the way, so many times in the revelations of the Doctrine and Covenants. Probably more than any other way of of self-introduction, the Lord would begin a revelation and say, "I'm the light of the world, and I'm the light that the darkness rejected. I came unto my own, and my own received me not." So the irony of the light of the world being rejected by the world that he created, that's there's some bad crust. And then the second level, "I came unto my own, and my own received me not." My own people The house of Israel. How could the king of the Jews be rejected by the Jews? And I don't just mean Judaism here. There's not a hint of anti-Semitism there. I'm talking about house of Israel, ancient and modern. Check your patriarchal blessing, my friends. Jesus is coming unto his own in the pages of the New Testament and in the pronouncements of prophets and apostles to this day. Do we... Embrace them or do we reject them? Do we not receive the Lord even when we're his own by covenant? And he's our own. If we'll choose to keep it that way. We got to get past that, that crust. And those who do, look at verse 12 and 13. But as many as received him. So we just saw the bad news. Here's the good news. If you received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So that's what makes the difference. And that's what John the Baptist was all about. That was his mission, to prepare the way so that when Christ came, the people would believe in him. Because if you'll believe on his name, what will he give you? power to become his sons and his daughters. Now we're already sons and daughters of God by default, by spiritual creation. We came into the world as his children and we have that embryo of divinity within us. There's the homing beacon. But will we respond to it or will we reject it? Will we gravitate toward the light or shuffle off toward the darkness? Because if what, what we're getting at here is, if we'll respond, if we'll choose the God who's trying to choose us, then that's that's childhood by choice, that's adoption, where the child gets to pick its parents. And here, if you will receive the Lord, receive those who are bearing record of Him, then power is yours to become sons and daughters of God by choice, by covenant. Not just by it's by spiritual rebirth, not just spiritual birth. King Benjamin teaches that better than anyone else I know, uh, that we can be sealed into the body of Christ because of, he's the Father of our covenants and we are spiritually begotten of him. That's all in Mosiah chapter five, verse seven. It's a masterpiece, and that's the promise here. Now, notice how this birth takes place, though. I love the list that John gives us, not of blood not of the will of the flesh not the will of man it all comes from God now p- take each one of those apart if this rebirth is not of blood oh so it's not it's not some kind of literal lineage we're going to see the Jews of Jesus' day wrestle with that frequently and Jesus pushed back like it's not, that's not enough that you are children of Abraham by blood it's not enough that your house of Israel by blood it's not your literal lineage that I'm trying to follow are you part of the family of the faith where's your faith have you been born of spirit and not mere blood next one the will of the flesh Oh, flesh versus spirit that one's easier you're not going to be born again by merely following the flesh by, by going the way of the natural man because spiritual rebirth does not come naturally To the natural man. Anything but. So it's not going to be the will of the flesh. And not the will of man. So this is not just your choice. Remember in the sacrament prayers. We promise to be willing. To take upon ourselves the name of Christ. He has to be willing to give it to us. So this is a relationship. We're trying to forge. And it's not all up to me. It's not just the will of man. It's the will of God. At the end of the day. And if he chooses to offer me that embrace, that relationship, that adoption, then I can humbly choose to accept it, to receive it. And by doing so, I receive power to become, in a covenant relationship, a true daughter or son of God. That's what, that's what John is trying to do. Introduce the parties so that they can become one. Now the JST alters that in one small way but significant way instead of just talking about us as the ones being born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh not of the will of man and so on he shifts the focus back to Jesus and says he was born not of blood not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man but of God. And Mary would say amen to that. Okay, God the Father would say amen to that. Again, don't Pick between these two. Because yes, Christ was born in all of those ways. But he's asking us to be born in a similar way when we are born of God through him. Next, in verse 14. And this is a passage on par with verse 1. Memorize verse 1 and memorize verse 14. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the Lord we worship. He is the word. We saw that in verse 1. A word that was there in the beginning. Ya ja uh, The verb, the word that was with God and the word that was God. But here this word was made flesh. He dwelt among us. The infinite becomes intimate. This is earth-shattering theology. This is incarnation. This is condescension. Those are the technical terms. Incarnation. You Spanish speakers, carne means meat. It means flesh. So incarnation is the infleshment. This is the spirit of Christ entering a mortal body. Like we saw last year with the, the lepers. This is the bird being put into the clay pot. We'll talk more about that this year when he cleanses lepers. Uh, but to see the almighty son of God. Th- this is the eagle has landed. Okay, John's eagle, Christ soaring on eagle's wings, comes down to perch among us. Can you imagine how majestic that would feel if a just a regal, bald eagle came and swoop down to stand right next to you be a little bit shocking but that's exactly what Jesus did he is the word made flesh wow the spoken word was willing to be confined to text on the page not just breathing things into existence but now confined to but it gives me a chance to study It gives me a chance to pour over the passage and try to make sense of what is being said. And so for the word to come and to be made flesh, ooh, now I can see it. Jesus has just given shape and meaning and visibility. He is the light after all. To all the things that the gospel is trying to convey. The lowercase word has become the capital W word. So I can see it. He dwells among us so we can behold his glory. It's still there. This is Moses coming down from Sinai and still having such a godly glow that you have to veil him. Well, Christ is veiled in flesh. He's come down to dwell among us. Come down, there's descend. And to be with us, there's con. Again, this is a great day for Spanish speakers. Con means with. Descend, you can be an English speaker for this, means to come down. So con, descend means to come down with. And that's exactly what Jesus did. This is high Christology. Because the high was made low. This is theology at its finest because it's incarnation, fleshment, it's condescension come down to be with us to show us the way. That's what makes him the only begotten of the Father in the flesh. We were all begotten of the Father in the Spirit. But to be begotten in the flesh, incarnation. This is God among us. This is Emmanuel. And he's here. And though he's full of flesh and blood now, he also is full of grace and truth and will forever be. In fact, he's so full of grace and truth that even in the flesh, the flesh can't contain it. It spills out everywhere. It comes from every pore. And he extends that grace and truth in every direction to every one of us. This is such a magnificent verse because it. light allows us to see. It's amazing that if there weren't light, then we'd all be blind. To think about physical blindness as an absence of ability on the part of the eye to detect light but if you reversed it, if there was no light to detect, then none of us would see. I've sometimes joked with my students, said, look around, tell me what you see. And they'll like, say, oh, I see a window, I see a door, I see desks, I see... I'm like, no, you don't. Like, yeah, I do. Like, no, I don't, I don't see any of those things. What are you seeing? What, how you are You're so weird. What, I see students. I see teacher. I see the, the floor. What, what are you talking about? I'm like, no, you only see one thing. Look around and you only see one thing. And eventually somebody figures it out. Oh, we see light. Yes. Light reflecting off the window and through the window. Light reflecting off the door. Light reflecting off each other. The only thing the human eye can detect is light. And it's that light that allows us to recognize whatever it's reflecting off of. So when Christ, the light, comes down and the Word is made flesh and dwells among us, he's allowing us to see everything. That's what C.S. Lewis said, right? I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun. Not just because I see the sun, but, by, but because of the sun, I see everything else. That's how I feel about Christ. I see him, but because I see him, I see everything else more clearly. It's, it's genius. And so for the Word to be made flesh and dwell among us, that's... That's what the good news looks like. That's also what the good life looks like. You've acted it out. Let me ask you this. If you have to assemble something or fix something, would you rather read an instruction manual or watch a YouTube video where somebody's actually doing it (laughs) so you can see? Now, personally, I'd like to have both, honestly. Because sometimes, I, I have to pause the video so many times, and sometimes I'll wait, wait, go, I, how did, what did you do right there? Which number was that? And I've got to look at something and go, oh, that okay, that's more clear. But if I have both, and that's why I love the JST and the King James, okay, capital word, lowercase word, uh, Jesus as the word, gospel as the word, let's have it written, let's have it acted out. And that way, best of both worlds, I can sit and pour, and, uh, pour over it and study on the page, but then just follow Jesus around. For three years, as we'll do in the Gospels, and this is what a what life in Christ is supposed to look like. Love it. I, I can see it all as I see Him, and please don't, please don't take for granted what it cost Christ to make that possible. The way it's described by Paul to, in his letter to the Philippians. In other translations, it's even, it's even clearer than the King James, but it talks about him, Jesus realizing that his godhood was not a thing to be grasped. It's an interesting word. It's not something to be held on to. It's something he was willing to let go and empty himself of his premortal divinity. To go from verse 1 of John 1 to verse 14, it's like, here's the word! But the word was made flesh? Really? He gave all that up? Wow. That's condescension as part of the incarnation. That's lowering himself to be like man almost. In our Christmas carol, mild he lays his glory by. Should be one of the most breathtaking lines that we sing That he would do that? He takes his glory and mildly lays it by to have robes of righteousness in all their their glorious splendor and to disrobe, to fold them up, mildly lay them by and then go into our worldly wardrobe and say, ooh, okay, I'll wear that. I love the line in another Christmas song called Welcome to Our World that says, wrap our injured flesh around you. And that's the incarnation to a T. That's the condescension. All we have in our wardrobe is injured flesh. Would you consider wearing it? Of course, I will wrap myself up in it and then wrap you in the arms of my redeeming love. That's what this theology is teaching us. And the only way for him to do it is to pour out from his overabundance of grace and truth. By the way, there's a contrary there too. Most contra- many contraries will map over the justice and mercy one, which is one of the simplest for us to wrap our heads around. And if truth capital T, unbending, this is the way it is, maps over justice, then grace, with all of its enabling power, with all of its understanding and empathy and kindness and compassion, that maps over mercy. And so when the Lord is full of grace and truth, he's got them to the maximum, he's to, uh, to the full. And he knows just how just and just how merciful to be in any given moment. Times where we're beginning to relativize things and he says, oh, I'm full of truth. And times that we're too hard on ourselves and he reminds us gently, I'm full of grace. And however much of either one you need, I've got the perfect recipe. Come and eat. It's actually interesting because much of what we'll see in the pages of the New Testament will be the Pharisees who... Strive to embody truth, but have no grace. They will accuse Jesus of being all grace and no truth. Now, he was both to perfection. Truth is like the general approach, the letter of the law. Grace is the specific circumstance and the spirit of the law that will help you navigate it. Jesus has both. Then verse 15 and 16. John, we're back to John the Baptist, bear witness of him and cried, saying, this was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me. There's John's humility again. Okay? Always shining light on the light, never standing in the way of the light itself. So he's coming after, but he's preferred before. For he was before me. There's some irony there. Even though John was born first, by six months, He's the preparer of the way and that's it. And the preparer might come first chronologically but he comes second logically. He's only there because he's only there first because first and foremost is what comes behind. Okay, Tailbacks always get more glory than fullbacks. Sorry for the fullbacks out there. But fullbacks go first. They plow through the line. They prepare the way. They open the hole so that (laughs) the more famous running back comes behind and that John understands it perfectly he's totally fine with his role he knows that Christ will come and so the verse ends and of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace now sit with that sentence for a while there's John and John's going to be popular people are going to love him and yet he takes all of that popularity and just points people in a more divine direction And hear what he says, Christ, with his fullness of grace and truth, so full he wants to pour it out into us so that we can fill up a bit of the measure of our creation. We can respond to the homing beacon within us and we do it grace for grace. Now, here again, we have a lot to to unpack. The idea of receiving of the Lord's fullness and receiving grace for grace. Let's unpack it. First, JST. The Josephine translation of this says, For in the beginning, this is the whole passage, For in the beginning was the Word, even the Son, who is made flesh and sent unto us by the will of the Father. So that kind of combines verse 1 and verse 14 all together in one statement. Yes, the beginning in the beginning was the word, not just the gospel. And the word was made flesh and sent among us. That was the Father's will. JST continues, and as many as believe on his name shall receive of his fullness, that's what we just saw from John. And of his fullness have all we received. The JST defines it thus, even immortality and eternal life, through his grace. That's beautiful sometimes we think that, well, yeah, immortality comes from the grace of Christ because that's the free gift. That's just that's resurrection. Everybody gets that, good, bad, and ugly. But eternal life? Oh, no, that's only for the valiant, only for the righteous. We earned that. No, it still came from a, as a gift from grace. We worked to receive it, but we didn't earn it. We opened ourselves to receive the gift, but it was a gift from start to finish. It was by grace that it came, a gift from God. But what of that state, speaking of grace, what about that idea of grace for grace? What's that all about? What is grace for grace? For this, we need another field trip to the Doctrine and Covenants. I told you that many a modern revelation looks back to to John chapter 1. For this one, let's go to section 93 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which is introduced in the middle of the text as a revelation meant to teach us how to worship, and what we worship. And that was John's point. John's point was, you, you want to know who to worship? Well, once you get to know him, you'll worship him, believe me. It will come far more naturally, because you'll see the height of the pedestal he's on. And that's the message of section 93, in which, does this sound familiar? Read verse 6 through 8. And John, the Baptist, saw and bore record of the fullness of my glory, And the fullness of John's record is hereafter to be revealed. Oh, I'd love to get more of this. And he bore records, saying, I saw his glory that was in the beginning, before the world was. Therefore, in the beginning the word was, for he was the word, even the messenger of salvation. Is this ringing some bells from our study of John chapter 1 yet? It should. Keep reading. Here's a few more echoes. The light and the redeemer of the world. The spirit of truth. We're seeing similar synonyms like to what we saw in John 1. To what we saw in section 84. Here they are in 93. The light, the redeemer, the spirit of truth. Who came into the world. There's that idea again. This world of darkness. Because the world was made by him. There's creation. And in him was the life of men and the light of men. Sometimes it's hard to even tell. Wait, am I in the Doctrine and Covenants or am I in John chapter 1? Yes, you're in both. The worlds were made by him. Men were made by him. All things were made by him and through him and of him. And then the revelation continues. And I, John, bear record that I beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Even the Spirit of truth which came and dwelt in the flesh. There's the word made flesh. There's incarnation and dwelt among us. There's condescension. You see how talk about inspired. It's almost like if God gave you the assignment, rewrite John chapter one and bring it all together and and reformulate it in a way that again, shines a glorious light on the light of the world. That's what section 93 does. But then about this last statement about fullness, full of grace and truth, about grace and going from grace to grace or receiving grace for grace, this is how section 93 describes it. And I, John, saw that he received not of the fullness at the first. So he didn't come with it all. We saw last week that by the time he's 12, he gets it. (laughs) He knows who he is. But he was still a helpless infant that relied upon his mother and father to provide and pro- and protect those first years, so he didn't receive of the fullness at first, but received grace for grace. There's the phrase we saw in John one, but then he, we add, and he received not of the fullness at first. Wait a minute, you just said that. Yeah, let me say it again. He received not of the fullness at first, but continued from grace to grace until he received of fullness. Oh, wait a minute. If I, was, if I wasn't confused already with the concept of grace for grace, now you've tweaked it just a bit, and now there's a grace to grace? What does either one of those mean? Well, let's figure it out. Grace for grace seems to suggest some kind of an exchange. I'll give you this for that. Grace for grace. And with that, I think of the parable of the talents, where the Lord gives his, or the master gives his servants money, talents, gifts but gifts and gifts that they, they weren't earned no, here's five talents for you, here's two for you here's one for you please do something with it and then by the end of the parable when the five now has ten and the two now has four and the one uh-oh, still only has one what did you do with the grace I gave you can you return grace for the grace I gave you Think about grace as enabling power. What will we do with that power? Think about grace as kind of recharging our batteries. Now, what are you going to do with the, with the battery power? And if you will take the grace, the talents, the gifts, the light that, I've, that, that God has given me, if I'll take that and return it with increase, show him what I've done for his glory and for my neighbor's sake. Father, Father. Thank you for this grace. I can't wait for you to see what I'm going to do with it. If your morning prayers were an acceptance of a day's worth of grace, and if your evening prayers were a chance to return and report on what you did with it, then you spent the day going from... Or you spent the day in grace for grace. And that night prayer will be an exchange. Morning prayer comes in our direction. Evening prayer, it goes right back. And then guess what happens the next day? It happens all over again, but at a higher level because you're growing up in God. You're you're practicing. You're proving yourself worthy of a greater amount of grace than you were given before. Isn't that what happened with the man with the five talents? Now he has ten. And the one that did nothing with it I gave grace. There was no grace to return. Well, take it and give to the one with the the most. Because now he's at at 10. Oh, actually, now he's at 11. What are you going to do with that? I can't wait to see. And so, if our grace for grace is the exchange, then our grace to grace is our progression. And it's almost like on this level, this lowest rung of Jacob's ladder, there's this exchange and it gives me opportunities to serve and lift and bless. I'm the deacon's quorum president. I'm serving in a calling in my young women's presidency for the 12 and 13 year old class. How will you serve? What will you do? I'm a greenie missionary. And I'm just trying. Then keep trying. And as you return grace to for grace with God, then he's, oh, that was wonderful. Are you ready to take a step forward? And go from one talent to two talents, or from two to five, from five to ten, and you're climbing Jacob's ladder. You're progressing from grace to grace until you receive a fullness, just as Jesus did. Because that's the beauty of it. What John is describing there, uh, what we see in John 1 and in section 93 to this point, was all the Lord's growing up in God. And of course he re- received grace for grace. And of course progressed from grace to grace until he received a fullness. But then fast forward and in section 93 verse 20, now the spotlight's on us. For if you keep my commandments, you shall receive of his fullness and be glorified in me as I am in the Father. Therefore I say unto you, you shall receive grace for grace. In other words, we are meant to progress in the same way Jesus did. We certainly won't do it as fast or as well. (laughs) And we'll never catch up to him. We'll never, certainly never, leapfrog him. That's not what eternal progression is. But it's God's generosity and Christ's condescension to come down to show us the way. This is how I grew up in God. And you can do the same. I'll pick you up every time you fall. Just come to me. And that's the invitation we'll see through the rest of the book uh, the, rest, the rest of the book of John, and particularly the rest of the first chapter of John. Before we get there, though, just a few last verses in this first half, kind of setting up the prologue. Look at verse 17, back in John chapter 1. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth, oh, those came by Jesus Christ. We've been going on such long field trips that I think we sometimes forget the flow of John chapter 1. But back in John, remember, he just talked about grace for grace. He talked about a fullness and specifically said that this Lord, this word made flesh was full of grace and truth. Well, now he's just pausing right there and going, speaking of grace and truth, it only comes from Jesus. What have you had up to this point? You've had law. And the law was glorious for what it was trying to accomplish. Again, Moses had to be veiled, but the veil comes off in Christ. You see the word made flesh. You see the glory of God. You see a fullness of light and truth. And it is meant to fulfill the law, not destroy it. You remember section 84? We were there already. But also in section 84, we're told that Moses sought diligently to sanctify his people that they might behold the face of God. That's what the law was trying to accomplish. The people just weren't prepared for it. So Moses gave the law, but with an eye to its fulfillment that could only come in Christ. Christ comes to fulfill the law without destroying it. Christ comes to balance justice and mercy. Christ comes to show us how to apply the law to every specific situation. Letter, spirit, fusing together in him. That's what he came for. One other, one other wrinkle here. Speaking of law, JST adds this. For the law was after a carnal commandment. Goes back to that idea of born of blood or born of the will of the flesh. Yeah, the law came because we were carnal. We needed carnal commandments. Tell us how we're supposed to do it. To the administration of death, because nobody could live it quite Perfectly enough. But if that's what the law brought, how about the gospel? But the gospel was after the power of an endless life through Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. So please don't mistake the means for the ends. Please don't rest content in trying to live law to perfection. You won't be able to do it. Turn to Christ, accept His grace, He has a fullness. We still need to keep exchanging and working our way up. Not working our way up. Believing our way up. Serving our way up. Reconciling our will the way up. Progressing from grace to grace. Receiving grace for grace every step of the way. And then verse 18. This is the end of the prologue. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now, as Latter-day Saints, obviously, we want to pause there and go, whoa, 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 whoa. What, about, what about the first vision? Uh, to which we'd add, what about Stephen, uh, who sees the Father and the Son side by side in his vision in Acts chapter 7? Uh, am I missing something here? Well, yes and no. On the one hand, if we honor the King James, there is a sense here of, you want to see the Father, then see the Son. Jesus himself will say that in John 14. So I'm okay with the King James as we have it, if we understand it along those lines. You don't need to see the Father if you've seen the Son, because that's what John is trying to convey. The eagle's wings, this is the Word made flesh. He dwells among us. He's not just with God. He is God, and now he's here. You can see it. Okay? There's never been a better example of like Father, like Son, than this Father and this Son. But speaking of the Father and the Son, as the two distinct beings that they are, the JST does add a clarification. It reads, And no man hath seen God at any time, except he hath borne record of the Son. For except it is through him, no man can be saved. And there's a couple of ways to approach that. One is, you're never going to see God unless you're willing to bear record of the Son as a result of it. And the other possibility is you're never going to see God except when God does the introduction and bearing witness of the Son. Which, sure enough, we'll see the baptism, we'll study the baptism next week, and you don't see the Father but you hear him, and what is he doing? Bearing record of the Son. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Joseph Smith in the Sacred Grove. He only saw the Father doing what? Bearing witness of the Son. Joseph this is my beloved son, hear him. That's what the father does ever since the fall. He is, meant, he's, he is pointing us to his son who then returns the favor and not only points us to the father but prepares us to return to him. Personifying the father every step of the way. Again, like father, like son, in a way that goes so far beyond anything else we could imagine. I hope as we now turn from the first half to the second half, that we'll join John in that endeavor. In fact, join the Father in that endeavor. Because as soon as John comes, knows Jesus, he bears record of him. This is like the shepherds all over again, who once they see Christ, this babe in Bethlehem, that the world's got to know. We've got to spread the good news. The Father spreads the good news. John the Baptist is spreading the good news. John the writer, John the Evangelist, is spreading the good news. Will you and I? He is our only hope, and the only hope of others is if we bear witness to them of him. All that we've said so far, how oh, prelude, <laughs> prologue, beginning. To me, in some ways, my fi- one of my favorite parts of a symphony, if I go to, the, to hear the symphony orchestra, is when they're tuning their instruments at the beginning. There's just this sense of anticipation. The concert's about to begin. And you hear all this. It's, it, it, there's not a melody. There's, there's not even harmonies. It's just this buzz, this sound. But mm, I, I love the sound. And that's the sense I get in those first 18 verses of John chapter 1. Uh, are we ready? Have we tuned our instruments? The tuning fork's about to hit big time for the next 21 chapters. Is my homing beacon ready to resonate and draw me back to God? Because that's what we're going to see in the second half of John chapter 1. People responding to the light of the world. As it's shining into the darkness, the flesh has come and been or the word has come down to me made flesh it now dwells among us how will we respond will we come unto him which is what we're created to do or will we be in the bondage of sin and refuse to perceive or comprehend that light we'll see we'll see it all begin in verse 19 and this is the record of John when the jews sent priests and levites from jerusalem to ask him and we'll see what their questions are in just a moment. So we're still talking John the Baptist, not John the Revelator, not John the Evangelist, not John the Beloved. Okay? But priests and Levites come out from Jerusalem. The Jews sent them. It's a matter of, well, we don't want to go you know, check it out for ourselves, but you, you priests and Levites that are supposed to be serving us, it's interesting that here's the apostate priesthood coming to, to check out the true priesthood. John the Baptist will be the poster child for the ironic priesthood. He's the one that comes to restore it, right? Uh, but here's the old looking at the new. Darkness, perceiving light. Well, will you perceive it? How will you react? They come and they ask, Who art thou? That's, that's what they're confused. Who are you supposed to be? He confessed and denied not. But this is his confession. I am not the Christ, if that's what you're wondering. Uh, Is there some kind of messianic hints behind your question? Who art thou? Because we're really wondering if you're the guy we've all been waiting for. Okay, the multitudes are starting to amass around you. Are you trying to create a following? Are you raising an army to, to throw out the Roman rulers? Are you he? It seems that John kind of reads the thoughts here, understands the assumption, and, and confesses very clearly. And this is him to a T, never wanting to stand in front of the light. I am not the Christ. I will not steal the spotlight. I will not claim to be something I'm not. Well, okay, you told us who you aren't. We still don't know who you are. So they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And remember, Elias is the Greek word for Elijah. The Greek spelling. So are you Elijah? Remember the end of Malachi chapter 4? I'll send Elijah. He's going to come to be continued. Dot, dot, dot. Well, this is the next book of scripture beginning. Have you returned? Elijah, is that you? We'll see later that John the Baptist dresses a lot like him. Acts a lot like him. He is a New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament Elijah. Yeah, camel hair and leather and all. <laughs> rough and un, unpolished. He's a rough stone rolling, all right. But are you the Elijah? The Elias? And John responds, I am not. Okay, over two. How about third option? Art thou that prophet? No, oh, it's three strikes and you're out. He answered, No. What that prophet? What? Who's that prophet? It's a good question. We don't know 100% sure. Some have wondered, there's that, that oh, prophecy that's still weighing on the Jewish mind from Deuteronomy chapter 18 that Moses says, someday there will come a prophet like me. He's the one you really need to listen to. So, who, are you Elijah 2.0? No? Okay. Are you Moses 2.0? He brought the law. Is that what you're bringing? Well, no. I'm preparing the way for the one that was—that's bringing grace and truth. It's full of it. Uh, so no, I'm not that. I'm not that prophet that Moses was wondering about. Uh, what other prophets might there be? That's the question on Jewish on the Jewish mind all over the place, because not since Malachi have we had prophets. Not through that entire intertestamental period. We had some potential messiahs among the Maccabees, but prophets? No. God's voice seems to have been silenced. Are you bringing it back? Hmm, okay, you're getting closer. In some ways, you're close on all three, but just, just not quite. I'm not the Christ, but I'm the preparer of the way for Christ. I'm not Elijah, but I'm a lot like him. And if you take his name in the Greek, Elias, and make it a title rather than a proper noun, then an Elias is a preparer of the way. And I am definitely that. I'm not Elias. I'm an Elias. Reminds me of a story where a man was on a plane, Latter-day Saint, and he was reading the Book Book of Mormon and, and someone next to him on the plane looks over and says, Are you Mormon? And the man said, looked, turned to him and said with a total straight face, No, but I wish I was. Man, because Mormon, I mean, he was a prophet. He was a general. He was a spiritual giant, military leader. The guy was incredible. I mean, yeah, I'm a Mormon, if that's what you meant, but I'm not Mormon. Because that guy, wow. You should get to know him. In fact, you want his book? Uh, it It began a great missionary conversation. But I love, you could have a similar conversation if somebody turned to John and said, are you Elias? It's like, no, but I wish I was. I'm an Elias, but I'm not Elias. I'm an Elijah of sorts. I'm not Elijah. I'm a preparer, but I'm not that preparer. Okay? And then the other one, am i am that prophet? No, but I am a prophet of sorts. I am, in fact, Jesus will say, he's more than a prophet. Don't aim that low. Of all those born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John. They both loved each other and both built each other up, as good companions do. But all of this, which hopefully excites us to get to know John better, just frustrated his initial audience. At least those priests and Levites who'd come representing apostate priesthood. They still don't know who he is. They're still scratching their head. By the way, there is a JST of this as well that reads that he confessed and denied not that he was Elias. So that's the like, well, yeah, I'm an Elias, but not that Elias. So I'm not going to deny that I'm a preparer of the way. But he confessed saying, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him saying, how then art thou Elias? How can you be Elias without being the Elias? I don't get this. He said, I am not, then check this out, that Elias who was to restore all things. And they asked him saying, art thou that prophet? And he answered, no. So talk about a fascinating clarification. Are you Elias? Well, yeah. Are, are you that Elias that shall restore all things? Oh, no, no, I'm not that Elias. Again, if Eliases are preparers of the way, if they're all highway constructors uh, or, or foremen, if they're all cow catchers, if they're all fullbacks, if they're all clear the way and prepare the path for something that goes behind it, there's different roles to play them. There is an Elias of preparation, and then there's an Elias of restoration. One Elias to prepare, another Elias to restore. Hmm. You understand why that would perk up in Joseph Smith's mind? And as John the Baptist is clarifying, I am a, an Elias of preparation. But I'm not the Elias of restoration. He'll come later. He'll read all about it. And in a certain way, if you see John the Baptist preparing the way for Christ's first coming, Joseph Smith's role is to prepare the world for the second coming. Two Elias's working hand in hand. Then verse 22 and 23, back to the King James. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? You keep telling us who you aren't. Then who are you? That we may give an answer to them that sent us in some ways I wonder if they again, the Jews are like, we don't want to ask you priests and Levites do it and then the priests and Levites are like, well we're not asking for us it's those Jews that sent us it's kind of hot potato, no, no one wants to be implicated in their curiosity or their interest it's like we sometimes do, I have this friend who is wondering and they're in this situation, but it's not me, believe me why can't we just open ourselves and be vulnerable enough and open enough to say yeah, I'm really wondering I don't understand this, but I want to. Can you help me? So, John, for my own sake, who are you? And what are you trying to accomplish? So again, they ask, what sayest thou of thyself? Okay, fine. Here's my straight answer. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As said the prophet Isaiah Well, looks like John knows the verse to put on his missionary plaque. Straight out of Isaiah chapter 40, that's my mission call. That's my role in life. To prepare the way for Jesus Christ. I'm the voice crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. I'm a highway builder. It's what I do. If John had a theme song... To put next to his theme verse, it would be from Handel's Messiah: "Every valley right, that's that's what it is. Valleys are exalted, hills are made low. The the crooked are made straight, the rough are made plain. That's bring up, take the cut off the top of the mountain, flip it over into the valley, so now it's all flat. Because it takes a lot of work to drive through a canyon." So instead, fill it all in. Then there's no switchbacks. Instead of crooked, it's straight. And you've leveled the road. You've graded it all out. So now it's a super highway that you can come to know Christ. That's who I am. I'm the voice in the wilderness. Which also shows not only that John knew his Isaiah 40. He knew the words that the angel Gabriel had told his father in the temple a preliminary baby blessing of sorts. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's John's job. It means he also knew the baby blessing he'd received from his father, Zacharias. When all of that was explained, some of the first words that finally came out of that mouth, when his father was finally able to speak again, John gets it. He knows who he is. Most importantly, he knows who he is In relation to who Jesus is. And I'm here preparing the way. Now that doesn't completely satisfy his audience. Verse 24 and 25. They which were sent were of the Pharisees. And who were the Pharisees? Remember the ones that were so concerned about legal matters. About obedience. About propriety and authority and all of that. So no wonder they're wondering about this. show me your credentials do you have the authority to be preaching these things who do you think you are they go on with their interrogation asking him saying to him why baptizest thou then if thou be not that Christ nor Elias JST adds who was to restore all things neither that prophet hmm seems from that that the assumption among these Pharisees was that the authority to baptize would be limited to those types of people. I mean, surely only the Messiah can come and baptize. Only Elias's. Because if baptism is some kind of preparation, then shouldn't you be an Elias to be able to do this? Shouldn't you be that prophet? Because if Moses brought the people through the water, what gives you the right to do something similar? Good questions. And what's John's good answer? Look at 26. John answered them saying, Yeah, I baptize with water. But there standeth one among you, whom ye know not. He it is, who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoe latchet I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. I love that passage. In some ways, John is so cryptic so delightfully evasive because he doesn't want the spotlight to be on him. It's not his purpose, not his, not his role. I just, look at him, quit looking at me. Why do you care who I am? I don't. You should be asking the real question. Not who are you, but who are you preparing us for? Now there's a question worth answering. And I'll give you that answer. Someone whose pedestal is so far above whichever pedestal my disciples are trying to put me on. I'm trying to kick it out from under my feet. No. He's the one that's coming. And yes, I do have the authority to baptize, but with mine, it's mere water. He will come. The one I can't, I'm not even worthy to shine his shoes to latch or unlatch his, his shoe buckles. And that's such a King Jamesism because nobody's wearing latchets on their, on their shoes in <laughs> ancient Palestine. I can't even lace up his sandals or unlace them, he would have said. But though I can never fill his shoes, I can prepare the path that those shoes will walk on. I can prepare the, the mountain upon which those beautiful feet will appear. That's my purpose. That's my point. That's what I'm trying to accomplish. Now obviously here, we could talk a whole lot more about baptism. We're gonna hold off till next week to do that, because then we'll see the baptism of Christ in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke account. And we can remind ourselves of what John is, is giving us here. But speaking of giving us, the JST gives us one more insight into that passage. Where the KJV says, he it is who's coming after me is preferred before me. The JST says, he it is of whom I bear record. He is that prophet, even Elias, who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoelatch I'm not worthy to unloose, or whose place I am not able to fill. For he shall baptize, not only with water, but with fire and with the Holy Ghost. Now that's a fascinating addition. Again, it's shining the light on the light of the world. I can't, I, it's not just that I can't unlatch his shoes. It's that I can't fill them. That's not who I'm supposed to be. But the way that it's introduced that I, I find so fascinating. Number one, I'm here to bear record of him. And that's what, when, when Nephi sees all of this in vision. That's one of the ways he can spot John. He's the guy that always bears witness of Christ once he sees him. That's his, his great role as preparer of the way. But also here, where it says, Jesus will not only baptize with water, but with fire and the Holy Ghost. That's some confusion because some people wonder, did Jesus ever baptize anyone himself? Yes, he was, he was baptized, but did he ever do the baptizing? Yes, he had the authority to do that, and we'll see later that occasionally he did. Though, he, he let others do it more often than he did. That's some continuing condescension, but the other line here I find fascinating is where it says, "He's the one of whom I bear witness. He's that prophet." Moses would say, "Amen and amen." Okay, the prophet, like the true Moses 2.0, is not John; it's Jesus. But also, even Elias. Wait, wait a minute. I thought you said Eli- and Elias was a preparer of the way. Jesus is the way. So he can't be an Elias. How does he prepare for himself? Hmm, Ponder that. Haven't the words of Christ prepared us for the coming of Christ? Hasn't his example shown us the way to live so that someday when we've mastered living like him, we can once again live with him? Ah, interesting. Jesus is both path and destination. He's not just the light by which we see, but he's the light we see. Jesus as an Elias for himself. Fascinating things to to ponder. But then ponder this. Verse 29 to 31. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, here he is bearing witness from the very beginning, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. JST adds, and John bear record of him unto the people. And that's John's mission to a T, bearing record every chance he could. And what was the record he bore? This is he of whom I said, after me cometh a man which is preferred before me. For he was before me. In premortality, he was before me. In hierarchy, he's before me. In importance, in, in, on, the, on the pedestal, in the, the chain of being, you name it, he is before me, even though I'm going before him. Just to prepare the way. I knew him not, he says, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. Now that's confusing, where it's like, wait, you didn't know him? He's your cousin for crying out loud. You knew him even before either one of you was born. You kicked in the womb when when Mary first came into your mother's presence. You've always known who this is. Well, is he plain stupid here? Because in a way, you'll see John do something like that later on. It's really classic. Uh, Ways that John creatively tries to point his disciples to become disciples of Christ. So is that what he's saying? Maybe. But there's also a JST that adds some clarification. Instead of saying, I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest, the JST says, and I knew him, and that he should be made manifest to Israel, therefore am I come baptizing with water. So of course I knew him. And because I knew him, I started baptizing you because that would help prepare you for his coming. Clean up your act so he can come and really clean you with fire and with the Holy Ghost. Again, this is, this is the shepherd recognizing the Lamb of God, lying in the manger here, coming to the Jordan River, and then going out to bear record of him as far as the eye could see and the ear could hear. 32 to 34 then, John bear record saying, and JST prefaces this, when he was baptized of me, so we're getting a flashback, he's already baptized Jesus by now, and he's bearing record to any one that will hear, this is the witness that I have. Here's my testimony. When he was baptized of me, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove. It wasn't a dove. This is a sign of the dove. It is descending gently, peacefully, like a dove would. The Spirit descended upon this man. And more than descending, it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but, and again, JST corrects it, I knew him for he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptized it with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. What I love about John's testimony here is what he learned and then what he, what he witnessed. Well, witnessed in both ways. He witnessed this with his eyes and then he witnessed it with his mouth. What did he witness? I'm going to know that it's Christ. Yeah, he's my cousin and I know, but do I really know, know? How do I know? How intimate, how relational is that knowledge? Well, I was told, when you see the Spirit descend upon this man, this man you know so well, but don't quite know in all his glory, in some ways John the Baptist here personifies every reader of the book of John. Uh, You've already got the other Gospels. You think you know Jesus? Mm, Do you? You'll recognize him when the Spirit descends upon him like a dove and and when the Spirit stays. Did you catch that? It's present in both phrases. You'll know him because the Spirit will remain on him. And that's what he witnessed with his eyes. And then what does he witness with his words? He's the one that the Spirit came upon and abode with. That's what makes Jesus different from the rest of us, among so many other things. When Jesus received the Spirit, he never lost it. Uh, With the exception of the cross, I guess you could say, why hast thou abandoned me, or forsaken me, he asks the Father. But when we were commanded at our confirmation, to receive the Holy Ghost. It wasn't a gentle invitation. It wasn't a promise that this is what's happening right now. No. It was in command form. In Spanish, that's how you give the confirmation. Command form to receive. Receive the Holy Ghost. I've joked with my students that if you were saying it uh, completely clearly, you'd say, I lay my hands upon you, authority of the priesthood, right? Uh, I confirm you a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I say unto you, you better receive the Holy Ghost. Now, we don't say you better, but it's implied. And we do receive him on occasion. We do receive him for a while. The promise, though, was constant companionship. That's the promise at the end of DNC 121, right? The Spirit can be your constant companion if virtue garnishes your thoughts unceasingly if your bowels are filled with charity, if you're living the first and second great commandment, that is, if you're worthy of the Spirit from God and wanting to bless all those around you, then of course the Spirit will always be with you. Neither have you turned off the hose, that's what unworthiness does, nor have you kinked the hose, that's what selfishness does. Sometimes we're worthy to receive the Holy Ghost, but if the Spirit stops with us, why would God keep sending it? No, let the water get to the end of the row. Unkink the hose, for crying out loud. Or on the other hand, if I've got an unkinked hose, I want to help everybody, but I'm not tapped into the power source, then I've got nothing really to help you with. So I've got to have both. And the Lord always had both. He never broke the first commandment, nor the second. His vertical connection with God was perfect. His horizontal connection to those around him was uninterrupted. How well do we receive the Holy Ghost? And better yet, will it remain with us? Will it abide with us? I chuckle with students sometimes about that verb because it's the verb we use is receive. And as an old football player in a previous life, I was a receiver. Uh, I went on I went, I loved catch and passes. That was my, my love. And did it through four years of high school and did it freshman year at BYU. And went on my mission and I joked that I, came, I left a wide receiver and I came home a wider receiver. Ah, so I hung up the cleats and threw myself into something I had actually come to prefer. Instead of receiving passes, it was receiving the Holy Ghost and receiving opportunities to help other people feel it. So I'm like, forget B- BYU football. I want, let's go just east of Lavelle Edwards Stadium to a place called the Missionary Training Center. And I, I transferred my talents uh, from the gridiron to the gospel. And, and you didn't miss me, believe me. But I would have missed out on everything if I didn't have the chance to teach at the, at the MTC. Anyway, as a receiver, I would joke with people going, it's so easy to receive. Piece of cake. It's so, totally passive. Because all you do is you stand there. And the quarterback throws you this pinpoint pass where the ball, the nose of the football, just gets wedged in your face mask. So you don't even have to lift your hands. And then these big, strong linemen come over and like pick you up and escort you to the end zone where the crowd goes wild chanting your name because you received the pass and caught the touchdown. (laughs) Wow. It's so easy. Now, my students know better than that. And so they roll their eyes. And then I ask them, what does it take to receive the football? And think hard. What does it take to receive the Holy Ghost? you got to fight for it. You have to get away from the opposition. You have to put yourself into a place where you're open to it. We have an incredible quarterback, don't get me wrong, but he, and he can laser fire it right in there, but we have to be in a position to receive. Often it means coming unto him, getting back towards him to get the ball before the defense comes. And once you get it, You hold on to that thing. You protect it. And you do something with it. You move toward the goal. And that's receiving the Holy Ghost. I would hate to fumble my faith. I would hate to be stripped of the Spirit. I would hate to be held up at the line of scrimmage. Where I can't even get off the ball to get to a place where the ball can come to me. There's work to be done when we are told to receive the Holy Ghost. And there is work to be done to maintain the Spirit. Jesus did that work. It abode. It remained. And I pray that we'll do the same. In verse 35 through 37, then, the story begins to expand. We saw John begin his work. He is witnessing what he witnessed. He's a shepherd bearing testimony of the Lamb of God. And people are starting to gather to him, which was only a preliminary purpose, because then he could take his disciples and turn them into disciples of Christ, which is what he'd been from the beginning. So watch how it unfolds. These last 15 verses or so beautifully describe how people begin coming unto Christ. Verse 35, again the next day after John stood, and two of his disciples, I told you John was popular. Lots of people have come to hear his message, to be baptized of him, to feel that they're beginning a new, fresh start. So two disciples of John are standing there with him. And John, looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, behold the Lamb of God. Same message, same invitation we saw back in verse 29. And that's all it was. Well, looky there, behold the Lamb of God. Look, no, but seriously though, I'm, I'm drawing your attention to him. Look at him, behold him. And the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Now that was incredibly concise. I'm sure there's a lot going on here and it probably lasted for, it took longer than it took for us to read it because these are disciples of John. How do you wean yourself off of one master and then find to go follow another one? It was hard to transition from my first mission president to my second mission president. I ended up loving them both equally. But when my second mission president first came, I didn't know him, so I didn't love him yet. I only loved my first one. And sometimes it's hard to shift our loyalties from the bishop we just had to the bishop we now have. Or the old stake president to the new stake president, or the old apostle, or the the last president of the church to the new one. And yet, those are transitions we all have to go through. The ultimate one will be when all of those lesser lights are eclipsed by the light of the world. And no matter who you've been following, when you finally recognize the purpose of that preparation, that they were never trying to gather you to them. They were simply trying to prepare you for him. That's all it is. We'll see that still a struggle in in the letters of Paul, as people are still holding on to their preliminary preparer, when I was just the opening act. I was the warm-up act. That's it. He's coming. And I've told my students that I can hardly wait till I'm out of a job in the millennium. Because nobody's going to want to come to my class. I don't want to come to my class. I want to come to the Lord's class. I want to listen to him. And you better believe I'll be in the front row taking notes on everything he says, hanging on every word. That's what ends up happening here. But it probably took some time. What I see, though, is the first of four ways that we'll recognize in the next few verses of how people end up coming to Christ. This first way was... Someone already knows him. John already does. But I know John. I don't know Jesus, but I know John, and John knows Jesus. So we're we're getting close, right? And now what's John going to do? Eliminate the middleman. So glad I know the two of you. You two now need to know each other. And then I'm going to slip away, leaving you two hand in hand. And that's exactly what John does. He points them in the right direction. And then, amazingly, he lets them figure it out. You don't see a lot of ethos or pathos here. It's just, let me introduce you to the logos and the argument will speak for itself. I'm not going to pull rank and say, I command you as your leader to now follow my leader. That's just too much ethos. I'm not going to try to appeal to your emotion and pull some heartstring. And Even my testimony is pretty sparse, pretty Spartan. Not a lot of emotion there. It's just, look, that's the Lamb of God. And leave it at that. And yet they came. In verse 38 and 39, Then Jesus turned, saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where where dwellest thou? Which to me is... (laughs) The weirdest question, what? Of all the questions you're going to ask him, that's, uh, w- what's your address? Really? I wonder if they're flustered, you know, if they don't know what to say. And, and he caught them off guard by asking them, what is it that you seek? So, like, uh, what? You, you're curious about our interests and our needs? You care about us? You're the master. We're... We're not even the disciple yet that we want to be. We're following you. Will you let us? Maybe that's what they're after. Where do you live? Because Can we live there too? Uh, It's like the the puppy that follows the little kid home. They're like, Mom and Dad, can we keep it? He followed me. Uh, Will you keep us? Okay, maybe. But again, I love the Lord's response. He saith unto them, Come and see. And they came where he dwelt and abode with him that day. For it was about the 10th hour. So about 4 p.m. It's getting late. Why don't you just stick around? Uh, the Spirit stays, abides with me. Will you abide with me as well? Hmm. Maybe that's how we get the Spirit to stay. We stay with Jesus. These two disciples did. But notice the process. I love it. It starts with John, someone who knows. He bears his testimony. Just look. Just go see. See. And they see, and then, John, and then Jesus turns, what do, you, what, what do you, in fact, what do you want to see? What do you hope to see? What seek ye? I think we need to do a lot more of that as missionaries, whether full-time or member missionary. Because too often, instead of saying, what seek ye, we say, this is what you're supposed to seek. We have the truth and you need it, so let me cram it down your throat. Look at this, and look at this, and see, 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 instead of, what do you seek? What are you looking for in life? You remember how the book of Abraham begins, where Abraham says that he sought, he says, knowing there was greater happiness and peace and rest for me, I sought the blessings of the fathers and the right whereunto I could be ordained to administer the same. It's not just for me, it's for everybody else. I want to connect up and then connect out. i got turn on the, the faucet, uh, unkink the hose, let the, water, let the living water flow. Abraham had it nailed. But I love what he was looking for. Greater happiness. Greater peace. Real rest. Where can I find that? I have a feeling, instead of us assuming we know what people want and need, instead of us prescribing before we even diagnose, maybe as better spiritual physicians, we can sit with people, understand where they're coming from, and ask those kinds of inspired questions. What seek ye? And once we know what they're looking for, guarantee the gospel will have the answer. And you can show them where it's to be found. Jesus opens with that. What, what do you need? And when they find, when they ask a strange question, he just leaves it open to them. Just like John wasn't trying to force feed them faith, neither was Jesus. Uh, John wasn't saying, "Please follow, please follow him." Please, be, and Jesus wasn't, "Please believe, please." He wasn't desperate. He had so much faith in himself, so much faith in them, so much faith in the process of self-discovery. Just tag along for a while. Love to have you. And if you do, if you descend with me, you'll like the company. You'll want to abide. You'll want to remain. And so they did. In verse 40 and 42, the snowball continues. One of the two which heard John speak, so one of those two disciples that came and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, here you might assume, oh, so the second was that Simon as well? No. We always talk about Peter, James, and John being this trio. And sadly, it seems like Andrew often gets left out. I love the portrayal of Andrew in in The Chosen because he's more of a lead character as he was in the John account. Andrew was John's disciple. And was one of the first, I mean, the first, as far as John, the, the Gospel of John lays it out, to then transfer allegiance from John to Jesus. Uh, but it wasn't Peter that he was with. Now, if we always assume Peter, James, and John are together, then we can assume that Andrew is a fourth, uh, the fourth wheel. Okay, That he's probably often with James and John as well. So it makes me wonder, who is the second disciple here? If Andrew was one, was James or was John the other? Because then if these two friends come to know Christ and those two friends each have a brother that they can share their witness with, ah, then two quickly becomes four. And we're already seeing exponential growth in the kingdom of God. It's amazing to watch how it all unfolds. So Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, He first findeth his own brother Simon. That's his first uh, investigator. The first one he wants to share the gospel with. And he saith unto him. Here's his his testimony. We have found the Messiahs, which is just the Greek spelling of Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now that's the second way. The first was just point And let them follow. And that was enough for Andrew and his companion. But Peter, as we get to know him this this year, which I'm so excited to do because I love the guy, but he was a little little harder nut to crack. And so it wasn't just, yeah, you should go check that out. It's like, no, Peter, I don't care what else you have going on. Uh, I don't care how stubborn and willful you are. I'm dragging you, kicking and screaming. I'm going to bring you to Jesus because do you have any idea who we found? Don't believe me? Ask John or James or whoever was with me. Uh, you've got to meet him. So please come. And sometimes that's what it takes. Bringing people. Some people are so proactive that all it takes from you is a subtle hint to go check it out. It's almost like playing hard to get. And they're like, oh, I wonder if I can figure that out. And curiosity or interest, whatever it might be, just drives them. And then they take it from there. Others, you've got to try this. You got to just see. I'm not asking you to change. You don't have to follow as much as I do. You don't have to have the same testimony, but would you at least respond to mine? And check it out? No, no, no obligations, no strings attached. Well, <laughs> there would be more than a string before long. It would be a rope that would bind the heart of Simon to the heart of Christ. But here's where it's first starting to be woven. And so in verse 42, when Andrew brings him to Jesus, what's Jesus' response? It's not what seek ye. It's not come and see. Instead, it's, oh, I see you. Exactly who you are. When Jesus beheld him, he said, ah, thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Well, thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. Yeah, I already know who you are. I know your name. I know your father's name. Maybe Andrew told him, but maybe not. Not needed, as we'll see in a moment. But I know who you are. But more importantly, I know who you can become. I know your present identity. Let me give you your future one. I know your present family. Let me invite you into your future family of faith. So instead of going from Simon, which like Simeon that we met last week means to hear. You, you heard Andrew. You're hearing me. But let's go beyond hearing. Let's, let's do something about it. Let's get past the noun that you're starting to notice and get into the verb. So you can be a little bit of a word yourself. A little bit of a, ver- a verbal and start acting in fact let's make you a Cephas let's make you a Petros let's make you a rock remember if Jesus isn't just a carpenter if he's a stonemason then he loves rocks because that's what he builds with and builds on and yes he's the cornerstone the chief cornerstone but he needs a foundation of apostles and prophets so that the superstructure of the kingdom of God can begin to ascend and Peter Peter I need you. So Cephas, Peter, it's all the same play on words and it means rock. In fact, there are so many other translations out there. I like looking at a lot of them to tease out nuance of words or just the syntax or the semantics are a little bit more clear uh, because it's not 400 year old English. But there are several very, very modern translations, some way too modern for my taste where they dummy down the Gospels and make it almost like street language. But one of them I just had to laugh at, because I was looking at, and, and it was describing Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah, as we see here. Simon, the son of Jonah. Now, I'm a Halver son, and if any of you have S-O-N or S-E-N at the end of your last name, it's, you're probably Scandinavian, uh, by ancestry, and so it just means that somewhere back in my family line was a guy named Halvor who had a son, and his new life. So he became Jen's Halvor son. Jen's the son of Halvor, and then Jen's son became whatever Jen's son, and it just goes on like that. Well, uh, in this ultra too modern translation, it took Simon Peter, Peter son of Jonah. And did a little creative respelling, but ended up calling him Rock Johnson. <laughs> because Peter's Rock, and son of Jonah, Jonah's son, John's son, pretty good. I honestly laugh at but when you think of like Dwayne, the Rock Johnson. Well, is that Simon Peter? Hmm. <laughs> but what is Jesus doing? I love the nicknames he gives. We're gonna see that happen another time or two in the New Testament. But to take someone again out of present identity and increase. Present family and expand. You are you're better than you are, than you think, you're more than you know, but I know you, and I want you to come to know yourself. By the way, there's a JST of that, fascinating one from Joseph Smith's perspective, where it says, you'll be Cephas. Which is by interpretation a seer or a stone. And they were fishermen and they straightway left all and followed Jesus. And that takes us into the accounts of calling disciples and apostles that you'll see in Matthew and Mark and Luke. We'll get to that uh, shortly. But a seer or a stone? You see, jo- for Joseph, those were synonymous. In the Book of Mormon, they're synonymous. They're called the interpreters. But to think of a seer stone, whereby revelation is granted. A stone whereby you can see. There's irony there, too, because stones usually obscure vision, but this stone makes things clear, just like glasses would. This is a Urim and Thummim. There's a seer stone in in the uniform of the ancient high priest. And do you see what I'm trying to make you? I'm trying to make you a modern high priest, Peter. I'm trying to make you a prophet, seer and revelator. So, it's not just the rock upon which I'll build, it's the rock through which the world will see. And they'll see see me through your witness of me. If you'll follow. If you want. Come and see. It's so interesting how we start to see Andrew and now Peter and Disciple and disciple, soon to be called apostle, as they begin to gravitate. As they begin to resonate on that resonant frequency and be brought toward the Son of God. We'll meet an, a, another person in verse 43 and 44. And a third way of approaching him. This one. The day following Jesus would go forth unto Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, follow me. Now, Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Maybe they knew each other. These would have been small fishing villages and so on. Uh, but maybe not. I don't know. Uh, but Philip, I wish we knew more about him. I actually loved him from some of the things we'll see later in the book of John. But in this case, yeah, I'm from the same hometown as these guys, but they didn't bring me. Nobody did. I, I had no direct connection to anyone with a direct connection with Jesus. And so, how on earth am I going to find him? Well, he's going to find me. And Jesus did. Jesus findeth Philip. And he initiated the conversation with a direct invitation. Follow me. For who? Who are you? Mm. <laughs> now it's come and see. But to be that bold, to be that direct, it was indirect approaches up to this point. Now, well, most indirect of the first a little more inter, more direct with, oh, I know who you are. You're, you're, you're Simon and you're going to be a rock, Rock Johnson. But this is the most direct. Let me, who, where are you? Oh, I'm finding you. Philip, follow me. Okay. And talk about gravitational pull. Just finds himself, how do I say no to that? I, I, I can't. There are times where we need to be more bold and direct in our missionary invitations. And other times we need to be more patient and and less overtly persuasive, and simply more inviting. Just come and see. If you think at the end of Alma chapter 5, when Alma is speaking to both members and non-members, and he has authority as the prophet over members, but he's no longer the chief judge, so he has no authority over the non-members. So to the members he says, I speak by way of command. And to the non-members he says, I speak by way of invitation. There will be times where we speak directly with to direct, will you invitations, will you follow me? And other times where it's just a casual, come and see. Or, man, have you heard about this? Or, did you ever know? There's so many ways to be missionary. I think, unfortunately, as full-time missionaries, we only learn the direct route. And we come home and think that's the only way it's done. And in situations where it's not the right way, since it's the only way we know we stop sharing the gospel as full-time missionaries it was all and if we think missionary work is all or nothing and can no longer do the all no wonder we end up with the nothing and that's tragic okay try different ways and jesus is trying this this story actually reminded me of when the saints are building the kirtland temple in the mid-1830s and they they know how to build a lot of it but they don't know what to do with the outside And nobody does. It's a small community of saints. And somebody's like, wait a minute. I knew a guy up in Canada. Artemis Millet. Yeah, Artemis. I'll bet he'd know what to do here. Yeah, problem is he's not a member of the church. And Joseph Smith was like, well, I've got a great way to fix that. And he turns to Brigham Young and says, I'm calling you on a mission. Can you imagine getting a mission call instead of saying you're Assigned to labor in the Puerto Rico-San Juan mission, like I was. It says, you are assigned to labor in the Artemis Artemis Millet mission. Good luck. Huh? Mission of one? Yeah, he's the one we need. So Brigham, go to Canada, convert Artemis Millet, and tell him to come help with the temple. Oh, and tell him to bring $1,000 with him, because we're going to need it. Okay. (laughs) And Brigham Young goes to Canada, and findeth Artemis... And saith unto him, follow me. And he does. He gains a testimony of the restoration. He joins the church. He comes to Kirtland. He helps build the temple. He donates his thousand dollars. Way to go, Artemis. And in this case, I'm no less impressed. Way to go, Philip. You came. In fact, since Philip means horse in Greek, I think he probably came running. (laughs) <laughs> this is coming to God at a gallop. Next, 45 and 46, we're still snowballing. Philip findeth Nathanael. Chances are they were friends, they knew each other at some point, and Philip had found Jesus, and now Philip wants to find Nathanael. We went from two friends bringing brothers, now we have a friend bringing another friend. And it's amazing, word of mouth, how this all unfolds. So, Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, this is the first time Moses has been brought up, the law, the prophets, writing. Hmm. Maybe there's something about Nathanael that is more scripture-focused. And so the best way to approach him is going to be basing some of the he hasn't met, yet met the Logos but he trusts the ethos of ancient prophets and if these prophets have borne witness of the coming of the Christ, the Messiah and he's here if you trust the authority of prophets then please trust who they've been pointing you toward let ethos lead you to Logos and so it does, but it takes a minute because Nathaniel's response is classic when, again, if he knows the scriptures that well, to the point that, wait, wait, wait. Moses talked about him? Prophets talked about him? And yet you called him Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph? that You don't know your scriptures then. Because Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? To which Philip saith unto him, like has been said so many times before, Come and see. I don't know. What, what's wrong with Nazareth? What's wrong with son of Joseph? Well, because Micah said he'd come from Bethlehem. So I'm expecting a a Messiah of Bethlehem, not a Messiah of Nazareth. And you said he was the son of Joseph. I'm expecting a son of David. I know my scripture. So don't be quoting Moses and the prophets to me when this guy doesn't fulfill Moses and the prophets. Whatever, just come. Just meet him yourself then. Okay, maybe I will. I'm curious, though I'm skeptical. And this is a fourth way, which again I find fascinating because it's like the second one where here is Andrew telling Simon, you got to meet this guy, come. It, now it's Philip doing it for Nathaniel, but add to it a, a note of doubt. Just some undercurrent of skepticism, like, "Ah, I don't know. I'm not sure, but I'll at least try. This is a hesitant investigator. You ever met any of those? (laughs) Just try to speak their language. What is it that they speak? Oh, they speak scripture? Okay, I can work on my fluency. What are they seeking? Do we have that? Yeah, we do. Let's invite them to come and check it out. Come and see. Now, Nathanael's response, again, if it's based on scripture, if he was assuming Bethlehem and David instead of Nazareth and Joseph, then notice verse 47 through 49. Jesus sees Nathanael coming to him and saith of him, no, he's not going to call him a rock. (laughs) He's got a different uh, impression. He says, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile which is either a compliment or not. <laughs> and it's hard to tell. Is guile a good thing or a bad thing? Mm, yes, maybe. I mean, have you ever heard, had somebody, Ever do you know anybody who's honest to the point of being brutally honest? And yes, honesty is a strength, but mm, brutality is a weakness. And Nathaniel just says it like he sees it. Like Nazareth, <laughs> that podunk town, or at least that non-scriptural one, can any good thing come of that? I don't think so. And when Jesus meets him, it's like, hey, I heard what you said about my hometown. Not quite. I, well, I was grew up there. I wasn't born there. I come from Bethlehem originally. And then you could picture Nathaniel's ears really perking up, like, whoa, whoa, whoa really? Where, where's your father from? Uh, well, he's from Bethlehem. But, well, my stepfather, my father figure, uh, yes. Kingly line, Davidic dynasty. Yeah, you Go read Matthew 1. You'll, you'll get a sense of it. Nathaniel could have used some of that. But you picture, oh, what an Israelite you are. A house of Israel. You care about Moses and the prophets. You, scripture is your second language. That's good. A true Israelite indeed. And Mal, man, there's not a, not a speck of guile in you. You are honest, aren't you? Brutally so. And whether that was a full compliment, thank you for your honesty, thank you for speaking it like how you see it, whether it was a gentle mm, rebuke, like, ouch, you didn't have to say it quite so brutally, honestly, or whether it was a compliment about what he was right now, just a guileless Israelite, or an invitation to become something more than he was, Can you move in that direction, Nathaniel? To have honesty devoid of the brutality and have no guile, but in the kindest of ways. Let's work in that direction. It's what Paul would say, speaking the truth in love. That was was very true what you said. Was it loving? Let's work on that. But Nathaniel... Responds regardless of however he took that, that compliment or, or, or correction, Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Which is a better question in my mind than where, where, where are you from? It's like, wait a minute. How on earth could you know me? I mean, I don't even know how you knew Philip. You just found him and then called him and he came. Wow, that's weird for strangers to meet and immediately click. But me? How do you know me? Whence knowest thou me? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and said unto him, oh, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Now, talk about a testimony. Going from skepticism to Probably the strongest witness we've seen so far. I mean, yes, Andrew told Simon, we found the Messiah. Yes, Philip told Nathaniel we found the one the prophets were writing about. But for Nathaniel, in an instant to embrace that witness and then surpass it with a testimony of his own, not just to call him rabbi, that's a good start. You, wow, you are a master. You, will you be my spiritual sensei? Will you be my mentor? I just want to follow you. You're my rabbi. But more than that, you're the son of God. Now, I don't even know if he really understood what he just said there. Because when we think son of God, it's like, well, obvious. We understand that. This is the word made flesh and dwelling among us. But first impression, does he get all that? I don't think so. I wonder, is this more of a, a modern, excuse me, a, a, a mortal version Of the infinite and the intimate. You are a son. You're a man. You're like us. But as godly a son as I've ever seen. You are a true son of God. With power to become like him. Who are you? And then the third. You're the king of Israel. If I'm an Israelite indeed. Then you're my king indeed. And I will gladly honor you, follow you, proclaim you to your own people of whom I am one. Oh, not bad for a skeptic just a few minutes ago. Just come and see. Come and try. I even wonder, too, when, when Jesus said, oh, even before Philip went to go get you, I saw you. You were sitting there under your fig tree. Now, I, I imagine that's probably literal. Is he sitting under a fig tree, propped up against his back, and thinking about things, and what is he going to do with life? And Philip comes and gives him purpose and direction and meaning. But I also wonder if he knows his scriptures really, really well, which it seems like he does, if he trips up over Nazareth, if he's introduced to Jesus by a focus on scripture. When I hear fig tree, if I know my Old Testament, what comes to mind? Oh, it's people at peace, at rest. Retirement. Resting under my vine and fig tree. Even George Washington knew that phrase and used it often. So I wonder, beyond the literal, which is of course possible, was Jesus saying something like, Oh, Nathaniel, when you were sitting at rest, thinking you had arrived in life and deserved an early retirement, when you had done well. An Israelite indeed. No guile. Knows the scriptures inside and out. You've served well. You've lived well. And there you were, ready to rest under your fig tree. I saw you. And wanted to call you back to the work. This is senior missionaries that have spent a lifetime serving, living, true Israelites and getting to a point where they can finally rest under their fig tree. To any of you in that situation, is the Lord looking? And does he see you? Enjoying some well-deserved rest under the fig tree. But is he calling you to come? And will you? Nathaniel just might be the patron saint of senior missionaries. Because he left the fig tree behind with its ease and comfort to go follow Jesus doing very hard things. But if you asked Nathaniel, was it worth it? (laughs) What would he say? Probably Come and see. Two last verses then. The conversation continues between Nathaniel and Jesus. Again, he's another one I wish we knew more about. I'd love him. But Jesus answered and said unto him, <laughs> Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? That's all it took? <laughs> Some recognition that how could he, that he know something that he couldn't possibly know? How could he know what only I know? That's all it took. So Jesus says, thou shalt see greater things than these. In fact, I'll give you an example. He saith unto him, verily, verily, I say unto you, hereafter ye shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. You just called me the Son of God. And you're right. I'm also the Son of Man. I am humanity and divinity fused and forged into one. Yes, I am your rabbi, if you'll follow. Yes, I'm the king of Israel, though not quite the king that you might expect. But do you have any idea the opportunity that awaits you? Because if you keep following, you will see the heavens open. You will see angels ascending and descending, you'll see that there is a closer connection between heaven and earth than you ever imagined. (laughs) I just broke that veil as the word was made flesh. I've come to dwell among you, and I want more than anything for you to come back and dwell with me. Will you help me? Will you feed my sheep? Will you scatter seeds? Will you bear witness of what you are witnessing? Nathaniel, Philip, Andrew, Simon. Go get James and John and Matthew and another Simon and Judas and everyone else. You and me, brothers and sisters, friends, inviting one another to come unto Christ, subtly suggesting, you should see what I've seen or boldly inviting, follow him. Approaching those that have such open hearts, as well as those with a shade of skepticism. But those that are honest enough, even if they start out brutally honest, honest enough to accept truth when they find it, to embrace light when it shines through the darkness. Those who comprehend Those who perceive, those who will come, not just to come and see, but to come and then go forth fully see. That's the invitation that the Gospel of John is giving us, as well as the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And those are second-hand witnesses. It's the invitation of Jesus Christ. On his behalf and in his name, I invite you to come and see. I invite you to follow him. And borrowing from the Lord's language to to Nathaniel, if what you've seen in Jesus so far amazes you, whether it's in Scripture, whether it's in his hand in your own life, whether it's in the restoration of the gospel to this point in our history, then to paraphrase Jesus, if that amazed you, then you ain't seen nothing yet.